0: So I'm going to call the,
1: uh, That's the way it always is. call the meeting to order, and I would say to people in the audience that uh, we would appreciate you refraining. We understand people have strong emotions about much of what happens in this committee and others, and uh, we hope you'll respect the work of the committee. Um, I have never operated a gavel. I learned as a young man uh, how to operate a hammer. I understand my staff told me to be a little more gentle with this, but uh, I want to welcome, welcome everybody uh, to the committee. The, uh, we've switched sides. Uh, that was not symbolic, I understand, just because of the number of seats, uh, it works better this way. I do want to welcome uh, the new members of the committee and say that uh, under Senator Menendez's leadership, um, I really believe that that this committee um, has caused its profile to rise. Um, we've passed a number of very important pieces of legislation out of this committee, um, and I think it's because of his leadership that that has happened, and I want to thank him for that. I want to say to all of the committee members uh, we plan certainly to build upon that. Um, We have a number of very important issues to deal with. The nation has put its trust in us to deal with these issues in a sober way. Um, And uh, I think that uh, the issue today that we'll be talking about really causes us to remind ourselves of the indispensable nature of U.S. leadership. I think the committee has, uh, like any committee, um, we have important things to deal with and we have urgent things to deal with, and we need to do both. Um, Important is for us to continue as a committee to show that uh, the importance of strategic U.S. engagement and how that improves our economy and makes us safer here at home. At the same time, we need to make sure that our taxpayer dollars are spent wisely, and so, while it will take some time to build, I like for us to work towards a State Department authorization. I think all of us know that we haven't passed one since 2002. And so what that means is the State Department is basically operating off of policies that we passed 13 years ago. And if we really want to leverage our efforts, what would make sense, and I look forward to working with Chair, uh, Ranking Member Menendez in this way, would be for us to ensure that what the State Department is doing is leveraging those kind of things that we would like to see happen. Um, I don't want to shy away from difficult issues, This first hearing certainly is is evidence of that. I want to make sure that the views of all committee members are heard. I want to make sure that uh, we strengthen our nation in the process. Today we're here to talk about Iran. And I want to say to our witnesses, uh, thank you for being here. I think there are legitimate concerns by almost everybody on this committee. Um, And it's not, in any way, uh, disloyal. Uh, It's not an infringement upon anybody else to say that we have legitimate concerns. And when you think about where we are in the Iran negotiations, uh, we had six uh, U.S. security uh, resolutions, uh, U.N. security resolutions that called for full suspension of enrichment. We then moved to this standard called practical needs. In other words, if you're in Iran and you have, if you want to do enrichment, even though that's in violation of the UN Security Council resolutions, what is the practical needs of the country? In ball estimation, that's maybe 500 centrifuges. And yet we know the negotiations have moved way beyond that. We know that. Um, we talked about dismantlement, and we have concerns of what. Dismantlement now means. Some people are saying that means simply unplugging or disconnecting the plumbing, to use very coarse terms. People are concerned about research and development. We spend a lot of time talking about R1s and R2s, and yet we know the Iranians are way beyond that. We're talking about R6, R7, way beyond that in research and development. The agreement itself uh, doesn't speak at all to ballistic missile development significant concerns for all of us. And we believe that, uh, although I'm not sure this is the case, I had a meeting last night, and maybe this is not true, and I know that uh, uh, some of you can enlighten us here today, but we're concerned about what we're really going to cause Iran to do relative to their past military dimensions. I think most of us think they're way down the road in their military development up until 2003, and I think we'd like to understand the type of technology Uh, that they have developed. And I I know this, and you all have shared this with us in all kinds of meetings, they still are stiff-arming the IAEA relative to access uh, to many of their facilities, which obviously continues to cause us to have great concerns about their trustworthiness. I think all of us know they're destabilizing the region. We watch what's happening in Yemen. We watch what's happening with Hezbollah and Iran. We watch what's happening uh, uh, with Hamas. Uh, We know that they are, even with the minor amounts of money that has been lessened uh, from the sanctions regime that Senator Menendez and Senator Kirk and all of us work together to put in place, even with that minor amount of money, we know that that has enhanced their ability to destabilize the region. We know that. And you can imagine if we end up with a really bad deal, that ends up creating a nuclear arms race in the region and makes the world less safe. And yet, much more money is released. They can even destabilize the region more. So obviously, there are significant concerns. I'm, I'm proposing some legislation, and I look forward to hearing from y'all today, and we're vetting it with people on this committee that builds off the one, two, three agreements that we have in place right now. now Senator is very familiar with this, but we 27 times this nation has approved a one-two-three agreement with another nation under a civil nuclear arrangements, where we y'all y'all reach an agreement with a country and we approve it. Secretary Kerry came in and said that he wants to make sure that any agreement that happens passes muster with Congress. I'd like to understand today how you'd like to see us pass muster. Uh, one way to do it is an up or down vote. I know there's been a lot of discussions, and I know Senator Menendez will speak to this, a lot of discussions about what we might do and what we might not do. I've talked to Prime Minister Cameron. I talked to the UK, uh, excuse me, European Union negotiator last night in my office. Some of us were in Israel this this weekend over this very same issue. We have heard no one, no one say that if Congress were to weigh in on the final agreement, it would have anything, uh, it would in any way destabilize the negotiations, and as a matter of fact, we understand that Iran's parliament may have to approve their agreement, so I hope today you will share with us the appropriate role for us to play. Uh, we obviously have our own thoughts. We thank you for being here, and with that, I'm sorry to give such a long opening comment to, uh, Ranking Member Menendez. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I uh let me also welcome uh, our
2: new colleagues uh, on the committee. This is an extraordinary committee to serve on, which is a confluence of both the national security of the United States, the national economic imperatives of the United States in a global context, uh, as well as major issues for which America is exceptional on democracy, human rights, among other issues. So I welcome you. I think you're going to find it an extraordinary experience. Since this is the first hearing that we've had of the new Uh, committee uh, as assembled, I want to congratulate the chairman on his ascendancy to the chairmanship. Uh, I want to say that during the two years that I was chairman, uh, we worked extraordinarily well in a collaborative fashion and in the midst of partisanship uh, in the Senate as a whole, uh, this committee was an island of bipartisanship uh, on so many major issues that overwhelmingly passed the committee in almost every instance with strong bipartisan support. And we look forward to to working with you uh, in the same context, with the same comedy, and with the same goals at the end of the day. And uh, we look forward to uh, you having uh, a very successful chairmanship uh, of the committee. Uh, I want to, uh, in the context of uh, the hearing, uh, say that I share your concerns that the Iranians are playing for time. Over the past 18 months, we have been moving closer to their positions on all key elements, on the Iraq reactor, on Fordo, on enrichment, and on Iran's disclosure of the military dimensions of its nuclear program. And I think we need to review how we got to this point. Iran over the course of 20 years, deceived the international community and violated, not US, but UN Security Council resolutions to arrive within weeks of achieving nuclear breakout capacity. And Iran came to the table only after the cumulative impact of years of sanctions began to affect the regime's economic and political stability. For us to give up the leverage of sanctions, which would take years to reimpose, we need a deal that truly reverses their nuclear program rather than just buying a little time. This is why I'm concerned about more than breakout time. I'm concerned the agreement won't provide a clear picture of the military dimensions of Iran's program which are critical to understand, to know how far down the road they were as it relates to weaponization, so that we understand the timeframes of any breakout capacity vis-a-vis weaponization. So that we know just how close Iran is to being able to make a nuclear weapon. And I'm concerned that instead of dismantling and closing Iraq and Fordo, as we were told, was going to be the case at the beginning of these negotiations by the administration. The Iraq reactor will now be converted to some form, and Fordo, a facility built under a mountain, which I don't think you do for civilian purposes, will be repurposed. After 18 months of stalling, Iran needs to know that there will be consequences for failure. Now, some of us believe those consequences uh, should be additional sanctions. While we are playing nice, however, Iran is playing an asymmetrical game, violating, in my view, the spirit and intent of sanctions. In November, Iran violated the interim agreement by feeding uranium gas into its IR5 centrifuge at the Natanz Research Facility. The issue of whether this was a violation of the interim agreement is only an issue because at the time of the interim agreement, the IR-5 had not been used for enrichment, and hence the agreement only prohibited Iran from making advances on the IR-6. That is spin, if I've ever heard it. But in any case, the action clearly violated the intent of the agreement to halt enrichment advances at Natanz and it violated IAEA and UN Security Council resolutions. And it's interesting to note as we're talking about verification agreements, uh, should we be able to get an agreement, that it was a group of scientists outside of the administration that noticed this and were the ones to inform the administration about it. So that makes me worried about our verification processes moving forward. In December, the UN panel of experts that monitors sanctions compliance said in a report that Iran has been illicitly trying to buy technology for the ARAC research reactor, which as originally designed would produce plutonium for a bomb and has been referred to by experts as a bomb-making factory because of the quantity of plutonium output. Under the interim agreement, Iran agreed to make no further advances in the construction at Arak. Iran's position is that any purchases alone would not contravene the agreement, only new construction. Well, if you believe that, I, I have a reactor to sell to you. And just last week, Iranian President Rouhani announced the construction had begun on two new nuclear reactors at Bushir. While not a technical violation of the Joint Plan of Action, The announcement is clearly intended to leverage further gains in the negotiation. And the very next day, the Iranian regime announced that Washington Post correspondent, Jason Risagan, who has been imprisoned for 178 days, had been referred to the revolutionary court that handles sensitive national security cases. As the Washington Post said in a recent editorial, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that Mr. Rezaian is being used as a human pawn in the regime's attempt to gain leverage in the negotiations. So we have this whole alternate track that the Iranians can cheat on, but because it's technically not in the joint plan of action, well, we don't call them on it. That's, that's That's a great opportunity if you can get it, that you can advance your interests outside of the JPOA quote unquote, not violate the JPOA. So let me close by saying Iran is clearly taking steps that can only be interpreted as provocative. Yet the administration appears willing to excuse away any connection between these developments and signs of Iran's bad faith in negotiations. It seems that we are allowing Iran to shuffle the deck and deal the cards in this negotiation that we're playing dealer's choice. Frankly, that's not good enough we need to get into the game. Now, up until now, Iran has not been motivated sufficiently to make tough decisions. And I hope there will be an agreement in March, but I also believe we need to make clear that there are consequences to no deal or to a bad deal, as Senator Corker is referring to, and I'm intrigued by his, most recent concepts of this legislation. So, Mr. Chairman,
1: thank you for holding the hearing and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you, Mr. uh, Ranking Member. I'm not used to calling you that yet. Um, And to the other members, I want to say we don't normally give those long comments on the front end. They're usually a little shorter. This is obviously one that uh, evokes a lot of concern. We're going to be having, uh, the committee will operate by early bird rule. If you're here when the gavel goes down, you'll know what order you're in. Um, We've watched, uh, People come in and sit and wait as other people come in and out. Um, but in order to show we're not going to be totally rigid, I know that uh, Senator Boxer has a meeting. We don't normally have other opening comments. She's not going to ask questions later, but since she has to go to another meeting, she wanted to say a couple of words on the front end, and I'm going to allow her to do that. Thank you,
0: Mr. Chairman, thank you for your generosity of spirit. I, Senator Inhofe called our organizational meeting for EPW down the hall, and I have to be there, and I so appreciate this. Um, I want to thank both my chairman and ranking member now uh, for this hearing. Uh, We're all here today with the same goal, and that is to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. But we have different thoughts about the best way to do that, and that's why this hearing is so critical, and we welcome the witnesses as well. Well, we have a historic opportunity to peacefully achieve this goal. And to me, it seems like you've got to give this diplomacy a chance to work. I think it's... Only common sense, as President Obama said, war should be a last resort, not a first resort. And a peaceful end to Iran's nuclear program, I believe, is in the best interest of America and in the best interest of our great ally Israel. And that is why I'm, I'm concerned, and it's not partisan, There's, I have a concern that reaches across party lines, that some colleagues uh, are pushing to enact new sanctions while our negotiators are still at the table. I don't believe that strengthens us, doesn't strengthen our position at all. And these negotiations are going on right now. In fact, I think if we enacted that legislation, we would jeopardize a chance, a once in a lifetime perhaps chance of having a, a far reaching final comprehensive agreement, which we know is gonna be hard. Our own president has said it's a 50-50 chance. He's not you know, wearing rose-colored glasses on the point. Our own intelligence community said, and I quote, new sanctions would undermine the prospects for a successful comprehensive nuclear agreement with Iran, unquote. And passing new sanctions legislation would threaten the unity we have achieved with the world. And that is critical. Uh, I wanna quote British Prime Minister David Cameron who said last week, quote, as a country that stands alongside America in these vital negotiations, is the opinion of the United Kingdom that further sanctions or further threat of sanctions at this point won't actually help to bring the talks to a successful conclusion. They could fracture the international community that has been so valuable in presenting a united front to Iran. And I think a new sanctions bill would give Iran an excuse to walk away. Um, I think it 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 just says to Iran, uh, to the hardliners. You see, you can't really deal uh, with America now. In the end, they may not be able to, and we may not be able to either. It's all life is about timing. We all know that. We ran, we got our seats because of timing. Everything's about timing, and this is not the time. So, um, in closing, let me say uh, I oppose uh, the legislation I've seen so far. I haven't seen the new. Uh, proposal. I will look forward to seeing it, Um, but I am working on legislation with Senator Paul to send a clear unequivocal signal that Iran will be held accountable for its actions and any failure to fulfill its commitments will be met by swift action by Congress. So our bill, in essence, would allow expedited consideration by Congress of legislation to reinstate waived or suspended sanctions against Iran if the President, in consultation with the intelligence community, determines that Iran has violated any existing nuclear agreement. Senator Paul and I are putting the final touches on this bill. We think it's a moderate uh, proposal, because I think we're going to see three, perhaps three options. a One option, which would essentially do nothing but just have a series of findings, which I don't think goes far enough, and one that perhaps moves too quickly towards sanctions. So, Senator Paul will be working on that with me, put the finishing touches. We're very excited to share it with our chairman in ranking. Ms. Chairman, I thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you.
1: Uh, Just to be clear before we move to the witnesses, uh, there's been a lot of confusion about what this committee does and what the banking committee does. Any sanctions legislation It's been determined uh, will be dealt with in the Banking Committee uh, because of the Treasury functions. Uh, So this committee, uh, I think, will be looking at ways for Congress to weigh in, and one of those is just for us to approve up or down the final deal, which is what we do every civil nuclear deal that comes our way. Certainly, this is of greater importance. But with that. Uh, I want to thank everyone for their comments. I want to move to the witnesses. Thank you for your patience. Our first witness is Tony Blinken, the Deputy Secretary of State. Mr. Blinken assumed his post after being confirmed by the Senate in December. He is a former Deputy National Security Advisor to the President and has previously served as the Democratic, Democratic Staff Director of this committee from 2002 to 2008. Welcome back. Our second witness today is David Cohen, the Undersecretary of Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. Mr. Cohen has been in his position since 2011 and has recently been appointed Deputy Director of the CIA. He has previously served as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing, where I think he's done an outstanding job. I want to thank you both for being here and sharing your thoughts and viewpoints with us today. We would remind you that your full statements uh, without objection will be included in the record. Uh, If you could keep your remarks to around five minutes, we would appreciate it. I know there will be numbers of questions. Um, So thank you again for being here. We look forward to your testimony. Uh, Mr.
3: Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, thank you very much uh, for having us here today. Mr. Chairman, congratulations to you on assuming the chairmanship. Uh, I'm very glad you're wielding the gavel, uh, not the hammer. Uh, But very much look forward to working with you, uh, the ranking member, and all the members of this committee uh, going forward. And I think it's very appropriate uh, that uh, you are starting uh, the hearings here today uh, in this Congress on the subject of Iran, the nuclear negotiations. It's an issue of paramount importance to our national security and an issue that we've labored on uh, with Congress uh, for years. Um, Secretary Kerry, Under Secretary Sherman, as you know, uh, and our entire negotiating team were in Geneva last week uh, as part of the effort uh, to get to an agreement where uh, Iran's nuclear program we can be sure is used for exclusively peaceful purposes. And I want to talk to you about where we are with that today. Uh, I'll give you as much detail as I can. It may be appropriate uh, at a later stage to do some of this in a closed uh, setting, given that the negotiations are ongoing, and it's hard to get into some of the detail in public uh, without undermining our negotiating position. Um, We remain committed uh, to continue, and, and indeed, when necessary, to expand the regular consultations we've had with Congress, and particularly with this committee, on these negotiations. We share the same goal to make the world a safer place by resolving the international community's concerns about Iran's nuclear program. Our core goals for the negotiations uh, are clear uh, and consistent. Any agreement we reach must effectively cut off the four pathways Iran has to obtain enough fissile material uh, for a nuclear weapon. The two uranium pathways through its activities at Natanz and Fordow, a plutonium pathway through the Iraq heavy water reactor, and a potential covert pathway. Any agreement must require stringent access, monitoring, transparency measures to maximize the international community's capabilities to detect quickly any attempt by Iran to break out overtly or covertly. Any agreement must give us confidence that should Iran choose to break its commitments, it would take at least one year to produce enough fissile material for a bomb. And any agreement must deal with some of the issues that you and Ranking Member Menendez alluded to, including the missile question, R&D, possible military dimensions of the program, et cetera, and we can talk about that uh, in uh, questioning. In exchange, the international community would provide Iran with phased sanctions relief uh, tied to verifiable actions on its part. Such relief would be structured so that the sanctions could be quickly reimposed if Iran were to violate its commitments. The discussions last week with Secretary Kerry, in our judgment, were substantive. They were serious. We've made real progress on closing some of the gaps uh, that separate us. But at the same time, real gaps remain. Uh, I'd be happy again to provide further information on exactly where we are, uh, along with Ambassador Sherman and others, in a closed setting so we can go into more detail. Overall, our assessment remains that we have a credible chance to reach a deal that's in the best interests of America's security as well as that of our allies and partners. Our goal is to conclude the major elements of the deal by the end of March and then to complete the technical details by June. In our judgment, we're negotiating from a position of strength. In the past, Iran has uh, used the cover of talks to buy time and advance its program in significant ways. Thanks to the interim agreement we reached, the so-called Joint Plan of Action, or JAPOA, Iran's program was fundamentally frozen in many key respects, rolled back in some others, and international inspectors have been given extraordinary access. Before the JAPOA, Iran had about 200 kilograms of 20 percent enriched uranium in a form that could be quickly converted into weapons-grade material. It produced much of that material at the Fordow facility, which, as uh, Ranking Member Nemna says, is buried deep underground. Today, Iran has no 20% enriched uranium, zero, none. It has diluted or converted every ounce, suspended all uranium enrichment above 5%, removed the connections at Fordow that allowed them to produce the 20% in the first place. Before the JAPOA, Iran was making real progress, as you know, on the Iraq reactor, which, had it become operational, and together with a reprocessing facility, would have provided Iran with a plutonium path to the bomb. Once fueled, the Iraq facility would have been very challenging to deal with militarily. Today, Iraq is frozen in place. No new components, no testing, no fuel. Before the Jopoa, Iran had installed roughly 19,000 centrifuges, the vast bulk of them at the Natanz facility. Today, 9,000 of those centrifuges are not operational. Iran has installed no new centrifuges, including no new next-generation models, and it's stockpile of 4% low-enriched uranium is capped at its pre-JAPOA level. Before the JAPOA, inspectors had less frequent access to Iran's nuclear facilities. Today, under the JAPOA, it's enabled IAEA inspectors to have daily access to Iran's enrichment facilities and a far deeper understanding of its nuclear program, its centrifuge production, its uranium mines and mills, and other facilities important to monitoring the program and detecting any attempts to break out. And the IAEA has consistently reported that Iran has lived up to its commitments under the JAPOA. Just as we've asked Iran to uphold commitments under this agreement, we've lived up to our commitment to provide Iran with limited relief, about $14 to $15 billion from the start of the agreement uh, to uh, this June uh, when it ends, and David Cohen can talk more about that. But that relief is dwarfed by the vast amounts denied to Iran under existing sanctions regime that we are vigorously implementing. The entire sanctions architecture remains in place, and David can talk about that. Um, Congress, uh, as has been mentioned, is now considering legislation to impose additional sanctions on Iran should negotiations fail. And let me say at the outset, I know the intent of this legislation is to further increase pressure on Iran, and in so doing, strengthen the hand of our negotiators and strengthen our leverage. We very much appreciate that intent, but it is our considered judgment and strongly held view that new sanctions at this time are both unnecessary and, far from enhancing the prospect of negotiations, Risk fatally undermining our diplomacy, making a deal less likely, and unraveling the sanctions regime that so many have worked so hard to put in place. They're unnecessary because, as I noted a moment ago, and David will go into more detail on this, Iran already is under intense pressure from the application of the existing sanctions. In recent months, that pressure has actually grown stronger with the dramatic drop in oil prices. Should Iran refuse a reasonable agreement or cheat on its current commitments under the JAPOA, the Senate could impose additional measures in a matter of hours, matching or going beyond what the House already has passed. The administration would strongly support such action. Iran is well aware that a sword of Damocles hangs over its head. It needs no further motivation. So the sanctions, uh, new sanctions at this point are not necessary, but we also believe their passage now would put at risk getting to a final deal over the next several months. Let me very briefly explain why. As part of the JAPOA, we committed, within the bounds of our system, not to impose new nuclear-related sanctions while the JAPOA is in effect. Absent a breach by Iran, any new sanctions enacted by Congress would be viewed by Iran and the international community as the United States breaking out of the understandings of the JAPOA. This in our judgment includes so-called trigger legislation that would tie the actual implementation of new sanctions to the failure to reach a final agreement. Even if such legislation is not technically and arguably a a violation of the JAPOA, we believe it would be perceived as such by Iran, many of our partners around the world. The intelligence community believes the same thing, so do our key partners, including the UK, France, and Germany. And this could produce one of several uh, unintended consequences that far from enhancing our security in our judgment would undermine it. First, the passage of new sanctions could provoke Iran to leave the talks, violate the JAPOA, and pursue its nuclear program full tilt, reversing all of the benefits we've achieved under the JAPOA, Uh, and I can go through those later. Second, even if Iran does not walk away or returns promptly to the table, its negotiators are likely to adopt much more extreme positions in response, making a final agreement much harder to achieve. Third and finally, if our international partners believe that the United States has acted prematurely through additional nuclear-related sanctions legislation in the absence of a provocation or violation by Iran, their willingness to enforce existing sanctions, never mind add additional sanctions later, in our judgment will wane. Their support is crucial. Without it, the sanctions regime would be dramatically diluted. Up until now, we've kept countries on board through a lot of hard work, despite it being against the economic interest of many of them, in large part because we've demonstrated we're serious about diplomacy and trying to reach an agreement that advances our security. If they lose that conviction, the United States and not Iran would be isolated, the sanctions regime could collapse, and Iran could turn on everything it turned off under the JAPOA with no consequence. We can debate whether any of these things would happen, whether all of these things would happen. What I can tell you is this, those that we believe are best placed to know, that is the folks who have been engaged with the Iranians, engaged with our international partners in these negotiations uh, for several years now, that is their best judgment. Uh, Why run these risks and jeopardize the prospects for a deal that will either come together or not over the next few months? In our judgment, there is nothing to be gained and potentially lots to be lost by acting precipitously. As Senator Boxer noted, this is a judgment shared by uh, many of our key partners. She cited uh, Prime Minister Cameron and his remarks. I think you'll hear the French, the Germans, and others uh, make similar statements in the coming days. One final point. Even if we resolve the challenge posed by Iran's nuclear program, I want to assure you that we will continue to confront Iranian actions that threaten our security and that of our partners, including its support for terrorist groups, its efforts to proliferate, its destabilizing activities in the region. We will continue to spotlight and oppose its violations of human rights, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. And we will continue to defend and build the capacity of our partners, from Israel to the Gulf countries, to counter Iranian aggression and provocations. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you.
1: Mr. Cohen, uh, Mr. Blinken was very fulsome in his comments, um, about double over. If you could sort of keep it to five, it would be good. Thank you.
4: Certainly, uh, good morning, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members uh, of the committee. Thank you for the invitation to appear before you today. And as this is likely my last appearance before this committee, before I assume my new duties, I want to thank the former Chairman Menendez, current Chairman Corker, and members of the committee for the courtesy that has been shown to me over the past several years. I appreciate it. There is no higher national security priority than ensuring Iran does not acquire a nuclear weapon. And President Obama has made clear that we will do everything in our power to prevent that from happening. For us at Treasury, that has meant working within the administration, with Congress, and with international partners to impose the most powerful sanctions in history. And in many respects, the sanctions have worked exactly as designed. They have driven Iran to the negotiating table. Because Iran's leaders know that relief from sanctions can come only in exchange for taking steps that will guarantee that Iran cannot produce a nuclear weapon. As we sit here today, no one knows whether the negotiations ultimately will yield a comprehensive deal. But we, like you, are dedicated to testing fully the diplomatic path. As we do so, Iran's economy remains subject to intense pressure from sanctions. Under the Joint Plan of Action, which has been in effect for a little over a year now, Iran halted progress on its nuclear program, rolled it back in key respects, and allowed unprecedented inspections of its enrichment facilities. In exchange, Iran received limited and reversible relief from some nuclear-related sanctions. Importantly, the JAPOA left in place the full architecture of our financial, banking, oil, and trade sanctions our terrorism and human rights sanctions, and our domestic embargo. This means that Iran is still cut off from the international financial system. It is unable to export even half the oil it was exporting in 2012, and it is barred by sanctions from freely accessing most of its oil revenues and foreign reserves. These sanctions are not just words on the books, we vigorously enforce them. Since the signing of the JPOA in November 2013, We have designated nearly 100 Iran-related targets and imposed over $350 million in penalties for sanctions evasion. Put simply, Iran still is not open for business, and its economy remains in a deep hole. Let me cite just a few metrics. In 2014 alone, our sanctions deprived Iran of over $40 billion in oil revenues. That is well over twice the total estimated value to Iran of the JPOA sanctions relief. Altogether, since 2012, our oil sanctions have cost Iran more than $200 billion in lost exports and oil proceeds it cannot access. Iran's currency, the rial, has depreciated by almost 16% just since the signing of the JPOA, and 56% since January 2012. And Iran's economy today is 15 to 20% smaller than it would have been had it remained on its pre-2012 growth trajectory. Because of the scope and intensity of the sanctions Iran currently is subject to, and because of the economic pressure those sanctions continue to apply, Iran is negotiating with its back against the wall. Accordingly, we see no compelling reason to impose new sanctions now, even on a delayed trigger. Indeed, we think new sanctions legislation is more likely to be counterproductive than helpful in the negotiations. Today, Iran's nuclear program is frozen and its economy, and thus its negotiating team, remains under enormous pressure because we've been able to hold together the International Sanctions Coalition. Enacting new sanctions now threatens to unravel this. If Congress enacts new sanctions now and the negotiations ultimately prove unsuccessful, our international partners may blame us, not Iran, for the breakdown in the talks. Overall support for the sanctions regime would then decline, making it more difficult to maintain or to intensify sanctions pressure. And if a breakdown in talks led to the demise of the JPOA, we would lose the additional insight into Iran's nuclear program and the restrictions on development that the JPOA has given us. Make no mistake, this administration understands and embraces the power of sanctions. Sanctions are a key component of many of our most important national security initiatives. We are not sanctions doubters. But neither do we believe that layering on additional sanctions is always the right move. Sanctions are one tool in our toolkit, alongside diplomacy, military action, and the myriad other ways that we project power. If diplomacy does not succeed, the President said he, quote, will be the first one to come to Congress and say, we need to tighten the screws. But in our view, now is the time to give diplomacy every chance to succeed, not to create a new sanctions tool. Thank you and I look forward to addressing your questions.
1: Thank you both and uh, again I just want to make sure everybody understands this committee uh, is not the committee uh, that deals with sanctions and I know that uh, witnesses certainly have the opportunity to say anything they wish in testimony. Um, That is not the issue that is before us. Uh, I'm sure you may get some questions about things other than Iran today and and people use this venue for that but I would just like to uh, to ask this question of Mr. Blinken. Do you believe Congress has any role at all to play in these negotiations? Uh, and yes. a short answer, if you would.
3: Yes, I do, Mr. Chairman, um, in, in several ways. Uh, first, um, we wouldn't be where we are uh, without the role that Congress has already played. I think the uh, sanctions that have been imposed to date uh, are what brought uh, Iran to the table. And our ability to bring the international community along yeah. has been critical to that endeavor. Second. Uh, I think it's absolutely vital that we remain in close consultation with you as the negotiations proceed. We've had the opportunity in various uh, closed yeah. sessions and briefings yeah. to do that. We want to continue that. Finally, um, if we get to the end game and if we do get uh, a resolution, in our judgment, the best way to ensure that Iran complies with its obligations would be to suspend the existing sanctions, not end them, to test Iran's compliance, and only then, and obviously Congress would have to play a lead role in this yeah. to actually uh, end the sanctions. So all along, from the beginning to where we are now, to an agreement if we reach one, Congress's role is central.
1: Well, thank you. I think one of the things that we all know is that when the sanctions were put in place, we gave the administration some national security waivers and you've utilized those. I think all of us also know that once you suspend these uh, more in more depth, and you agree to do that with the uh, P5. In essence, what's going to happen is the entire regime is going to fall apart. And so I sent you some legislation, I'm very disappointed you didn't address that today in your opening comments, that would just allow us, we do do not want to do something that infringes upon getting to a good deal. And so we've sought to figure out some way for Congress to be able to weigh in before you dismantle, before you dismantle over a longer period of time with this national security waiver the entire regime. We've asked, is it, is it appropriate for us to at least be able to weigh in since we did, in fact, put those sanctions in place? So I would just ask you this. Do you believe that Congress should have the ability to vote up or down on any agreement? Uh, in the same framework that we do with one, two, three agreements, which we've done 27 times on our civil deals, do you not think this rises to that level of importance to our nation? And would you oppose this body taking up legislation to deal with that in a up-or-down vote uh, on the Senate floor? Thank you, very Mr. Chairman.
3: Um, I've had an opportunity to look at um, at uh, what you're proposing, and let me say at the outset, uh, first of all, how much we very appreciate uh, your leadership on this and the intent uh, of uh, what you're proposing. And as someone who, as you alluded to before, worked on this committee for six years, I also uh, fully understand uh, the desire for a Congress to have uh, some kind of up or down vote uh, on whatever is agreed to. Um, From where I sit now, uh, I think uh, you'll also understand the position of the administration, for that matter, any administration, Republican or Democrat, on the importance of maintaining the executive prerogative to conclude agreements That advance our national security interests and do not require formal congressional approval. Uh, There's a concern uh, that this could set a precedent for future executive branch uh, action. Um, This to us would be, I think, uh, a unique uh, arrangement. It will not be a treaty uh, or other type of international agreement where all parties are required to take similar actions themselves. It will not be like uh, an arms control agreement that imposes obligations on the United States and our nuclear weapons policy. And it's not exactly akin to a one, two, three agreement because in this case, we have multiple partners at the table uh, on an issue obviously of tremendous complexity. Rather, this would be the international community putting strong limits on Iran's nuclear program and Iran agreeing to adhere to those limits. But as I said earlier, just as Congress played a key role in getting us here-
1: So if uh, I could, I think the answer is no. So let 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 me, you know, we could easily deal with this by just passing legislation that does away with national security waivers. So they're, they're, mm-hmm. Then you'd have to come to us. Yeah. So, so I don't understand. You know, you, you, you've talked about the sanctions piece. I've talked to our French negotiators directly. I talked to our U.K. negotiators directly. I talked to Prime Minister Cameron mm-hmm. directly. I talked last night at length in my office to the negotiator on behalf of the European Union. I was in Israel this weekend. I talked to the intelligence agencies there. I talked to the prime minister. I have met no one who believes that us weighing in would do anything to destabilize these negotiations. As a matter of fact, many have said, Knowing that Congress has to approve the deal would be a great backstop for the administration to strengthen their hand just as the negotiators, negotiators in Iran continue to refer to the hardliners and to Khomeini, the spiritual, the leader, the supreme leader. And I don't understand why, I mean, we, again, we could just do away, we were generous in the passage of these sanctions, giving you a security waiver. We could actually just do away with that and you'd have to come to us. So why would you oppose Congress weighing in on an issue of this importance and isn't holler for you to say that you want this to pass muster or Secretary Kerry to say this should pass muster and yet continue to stiff arm, every effort be pushed away, Congress who represents more fully this nation than the negotiators not having the ability to weigh in on this deal.
3: Mr. Chairman, let me suggest a few uh, concerns that could materialize. First. In terms of the negotiations themselves, um, the knowledge that there would be very early on, uh, this kind of vote, in our judgment, could actually undermine the credibility of the commitments we would make in the, co- in the context of negotiations to suspend, not end. Does the Iranian
1: parliament make? not need to weigh in on some of the agreements that Iran is putting in place? They, under their laws, they may be required to.
3: Okay, that's, that's so,
1: so on one hand, we would negotiate in such a way as we, we know that the supreme leader could try to influence the Iranian parliament to, to go against what they may agree to, and yet you would say here it's not important for the greatest deliberative body in the world, quote, 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 to be able to weigh in on this issue. As a matter of fact, the body that actually put together this regime that the, interti- the entire international community is building these negotiations off of.
3: Let me Let me suggest that two things. First, there's um, a concern that if uh, a judgment is reached immediately, yay or nay, on this, uh, it may be too soon to judge whether Iran, in fact, has complied with its commitments. You know, if Congress had been asked to vote on the interim agreement in the days after it was reached, I suspect many who now believe that the agreement has produced very strong results for our security, initially were skeptical, might well have voted, voted it down. I think giving the, agreement, the Iranians time to demonstrate clearly to you and to us that they're making good on their commitments would make sense. Second, I actually think our leverage is enhanced and Congress's leverage is enhanced if we suspend sanctions initially, if we get an agreement and then once Iran has demonstrated that it's making good on its commitments, Congress uh, acts and takes the actions necessary. I think we have stronger leverage doing that than pronouncing ourselves immediately until we see uh, whether Iran is making good on its commitments.
1: Well, my time is up, but I would support uh, a series of votes if that's what you're saying. Um, I would support uh, an initial vote on the deal as a whole, and I think Congress would be more than glad to work with you on a series of votes as you move along. I I will say, Mr. Blinken, after having served on this committee um, and after y'all spending incredible amounts of time uh, dissing the sanctions regime, which we are not focused on, we're trying to find a constructive way for Congress to play its rightful role in these negotiations. And I'm very disappointed that, in essence, what the administration is saying is we really don't want, even though Congress put us in this place, we really don't want Congress to play a role in one of the most important geopolitical agreements that may take place during this administration. With that, uh, ranking member member Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You
2: know, I, I have to be honest with you. The more I hear from the administration and its quotes, uh, the more it sounds like talking points that come straight out of Tehran. And it feeds to the Iranian narrative of victimization uh, when they are the ones with original sin, an illicit nuclear weapons program going back uh, over the course of 20 years that they are unwilling to come clean on. So I don't know why we feel compelled to make their case when, in fact, do you dispute any of the things I said in my opening statement about actions that they have taken uh, as it relates to the UN monitors, as it relates to fueling that rod, as it relates to those other elements? Do you dispute any of those? Just yes or no?
3: Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ranking member, no, I think you're largely correct. Okay.
2: So then the bottom line is they get to cheat in a series of ways. I call it cheat. You won't but they get to cheat in a series of ways, and we get to worry about their perceptions. To quote from your testimony, and I'll quote directly, even if such sanctions are not arguably a technical violation of the Joint Plan of Action, we believe they would be perceived as such by Iran. Now, so we're worried about their perceptions, but, our perceptions of what they are doing to advance their nuclear interests uh, can be just clearly swept underneath the rug. And I also think it's important reading from your testimony to put the Joint Plan of Action in the appropriate context. You say, quote, instead of limiting work on advanced centrifuges, referring to Iran, it could resume its efforts to increase and significantly improve its nuclear capabilities in a relatively short time frame, So let's be honest about what the joint plan of action is. It's a freeze. It's a freeze that scientists that have come before this committee have said, if they in fact decide to proceed and not make a deal, they need about three months. Now what, what Mr. Chairman, I don't know that members of the audience are, get to participate here, and, uh, but they need about three months. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'll accept their testimony as pretty much substantive as to where they need to go. Any sanctions that we have imposed have taken minimum six months to give lead time to the world and to companies that this is now a sanctionable item. So that puts us beyond the time frame if they make a decision to move in a different direction. And let's be honest that at one time maybe, but now the Iranians do not believe that there is a credible use of military force on the table should they not make a deal and should they move to break through on nuclear uh, capabilities for weaponization. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, you're telling the committee then, and you can look us straight in the eye and say that prospective sanctions that don't take place until July, well after the period of time of not just a framework, because I've never been able to get my hands around your March framework, what that really means. I've been told there's not even gonna be a written document to that effect. A March framework that takes place in July after a deal has either been consummated or not, and would only take place if a deal has not been consummated and even with presidential waivers at that period of time is somehow gonna make the Ayatollah walk away from a deal that he thinks is in his country's or his best interest to have anyhow. That's tough to believe in. It just, it it defies common sense. That if I wanna make a deal, that something you're gonna do that doesn't affect my, my ability to make that deal is gonna make me walk away from a deal that I found is in my interest anyhow. That's just not common sense. So, I get get that you're all hung up on the sanctions thing, and I get that there's, you know, you talk about perception that it's not necessarily a violation, but they'll be perceived as such. So, we have to worry about all of the Iranian perceptions, but we can just swallow all of what they're doing independently. So, let me ask you this Isn't it true that even the deal that you are striving towards? is not to eliminate any Iranian breakout capability, but to constrain the time in which you'll get the notice of such breakout capability. Is that a fair statement, yes or no? Yes, it is. Okay, so we're not eliminating Iran's ability to break out. We're just getting alarm bells. And the question is, how long are we gonna get those alarm bells for? Now, isn't it also true that the administration cannot lift sanctions, that it can only waive them under the present law? Yes or
3: no? That's largely correct.
2: Uh, So now, the Iranians are going to make a deal in which this president may waive sanctions, but the next president of the United States, whoever that may be, may decide, you know what? This is not in our interest because it's only going to give us a limited period of time, and they're going to go ahead and say, sorry, we're not waiving the sanctions anymore. And that, The Iranians are willing to make the hard decisions that they need to make that they have been unwilling to make for 18 months because I heard this movie has been played before, right, 20 years. Last June we heard from the President, just give me time, that was seven months ago, right. Now we're reliving it again. And so the bottom line is that we are going to do all of this and ultimately be in a position in which If they don't make a deal, we're exactly where we are at, but with no immediate consequences to them. Their breakout time is shorter than the time it will take to create new sanctions. And now you're telling me, the chairman, based upon your responses, that you don't want us to even vote. The Iranians have made it very clear that their parliament has to vote on this issue. Why is it possible that Tehran will treat its parliament better then the administration in the greatest democracy in the world is willing to treat its Congress. It's, it's, it just boggles my imagination. So uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, I look forward uh, to uh, looking at your legislation. I, I have suggested to you uh, in our previous conversations some ways in which I think uh, it, it might uh, be made even stronger. And, um, and I appreciate uh, the, uh, this is one of our first hearings.
3: Mr. Chairman, could I uh, quickly address some of the uh, ranking members' uh, points? Um, Mr. Ranking Member, I think we are most worried about not Iranian perceptions, but the perceptions of our partners who are critical to enforcing the sanctions. And what we've heard from them, uh, including from um, Prime Minister Cameron as recently as last week, including from our French and British colleagues, is that further sanctions now, or the threat of sanctions, or even trigger legislation, uh, risks unraveling the international coalition that we built to impose the sanctions. At the end of the day, it will be much easier if we wind up suspending sanctions in the event of an agreement uh, of some kind to reimpose them quickly if we've kept the international coalition together. So what we're most concerned about and focused on is that it's not Iranian perceptions, although it does matter because look, Iran is not immune to politics either. They have their own, they have people who are negotiating who are not friends of ours, who are not good guys, but who may be more pragmatic because they're looking at the future of their country and are trying to get out from the burdens that they're under. Um, so we do uh, want to uh, do what we can uh, to make sure that they're not penalized. But what's critical is our partners in our ability both to sustain the sanctions and if we have to, uh, to increase them. Um, second, I think under the um, JAPOA, uh, this is different than the past. In the past, uh, it's true, we've uh, engaged with Iran and talked to them without having something like the JAPOA that froze the program, in some respects rolled it back, and created much greater access to learn more about it. And you're exactly right that under those circumstances, the Iranians would be able to basically talk and advance their program at the same time. That is not what is happening now. This has been a good interim deal for us in our security as we've uh, pursued whether we can get to uh, a final deal. I think the framework uh, you asked about, what we hope to get to in March, is the agreement on all of the core elements, what commitments the Iranians would make. <laughs> then it will take some time to translate that into tremendous technical detail. That's why we, need the, we would need the time until June to do that. But that's what we hope to be able to present to you if we get to yes um, at, the, uh, at the end of March. Um, I do believe uh, that Iran believes that there is the very credible threat uh, of force, but what is motivating it primarily now and what brought it to the table is the tremendous economic burden it's under. Thank you.
1: Senator Menendez, I appreciate your willingness uh, to, to look at some legislation that would give us an up or down vote on this issue, and I would say in response to Mr. Blinken's comments, I've talked with our international partners. Not a single one of them has any concerns whatsoever with Congress having the ability to vote up or down on a final deal. Many of them believe it strengthens our hands, so with that, Mr. Gardner, Senator Gardner.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Secretary Blinken, I don't want to mischaracterize anything that you said in your response to Chairman Corker, so I want to clarify perhaps a comment that I I heard wrong. Uh, You mentioned that in the discussion the possibility of legislation that the Chairman has sent over to you, the possibility of that legislation undermining the credibility of our negotiators. Could you expound on that comment? And is that – is that what you – what you indeed said? The – in the context of
3: these uh, negotiations, if we get uh, to an understanding, part of this, our commitment, should the Iranians make the commitments necessary to convince us and our partners that their program would be for uh, peaceful purposes, uh, in return, their expectation uh, is that something would be done about uh, the sanctions. They, of course, would like us to end the sanctions immediately. That is something we will not do, and Undersecretary Cohen can address that. We believe that the best way to proceed is based on the, not only the commitments they make, but also the steps they take to implement those commitments that initially we suspend, not end certain sanctions, and that over time, as they demonstrate that they're making good at that point, we get to actually ending them, and Congress would have to do that and play a role there. The concern that we would have is that if we're saying we are going to be suspending certain sanctions early on, and yet that is still subject to an initial uh, vote Uh, by the Congress in some fashion, they will doubt our ability to actually deliver on our commitment. That's a concern that could
5: make the negotiations more complicated. And have you heard from any of our our partners around the world that they they believe this uh, legislation would undermine the credibility of our negotiators? Um, I I can't say that.
3: I have not talked to any of our partners personally about uh, the proposed uh, legislation that the chairman is proposing uh, or any kind of What I was talking about was actually
5: sanctions legislation, including trigger legislation. I mean, it has been fairly public in terms of uh, in, the, in news reports about the proposed legislation. The ideas that we would put forward, no one—this uh, is strictly the administration's position—and no, none of our partners. Um, we we would have to ask them. I don't know what their position would be on that. Uh, you mentioned a talk about uh, the the uh, Iran not being immune to to politics, and so following up on uh, President Rouhani, does he have the support uh, within the Iranian? government within, the, the, polit- the politics within Iran uh, to accept an agreement from the United States international community, regardless of how flexible the United States is in the international community uh, with sanctions uh, during, the, uh, during negotiations? I-, I think you asked the
3: $64,000 question. The short answer is, we don't know. That really is the test. Uh, can Iran do what is necessary? Uh, to get to yes and to meet the very stringent requirements that we have and that our partners have. That's exactly what we're testing now. I would say to you, Senator, that over the course of these negotiations, we have seen uh, the gaps close, and Iran, uh, after initially absolutely rejecting certain steps that we believe are necessary, uh, being open to them. But here's what's particularly complicated about this. This is one of those situations where nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. So we may have, in the course of the negotiations, an agreement in principle on one aspect, and we've talked about several of them, uh, Iraq, uh, Natanz, uh, possible military dimensions of the program, uh, et cetera. Um, But unless and until we're able to conclude all of the elements, then uh, nothing is agreed to. So what we've seen is that on specific chapters, critical chapters, they have moved closer to a point where we would uh, find their commitments acceptable in answering uh, our requirements. On others, we're just not there yet, and it goes to your question, do they have enough political
5: space to make the agreement? I think we'll, we'll find that out over the next two months. And going back to the JAPOA, do you believe the Corker legislation would, would violate the intent of the JAPOA? No. So the, again, the, it would not violate the intent of the JAPOA, but would give us the ability to weigh in as Congress, the ability to perform and consent obligations under our Constitution. So it's strictly the administration's concern that this would interfere with their negotiations? Again, I
3: think some of the concerns
5: are that, and and the JAPOA I think may be illustrative
3: of this. If um, members had been asked to pronounce themselves uh, within uh, a month or so on the JAPOA, I suspect that uh, many members initially uh, might have given it a thumbs down because there was great skepticism about it. I think the JAPOA has has proved itself through the results it's achieved over the course uh, of the agreement, and I think a lot of minds were changed. Indeed, for example, our Israeli partners, who were also very skeptical of the JAPOA initially, uh, now tell us and acknowledge to us that it's been a success. So one concern is that um, pronouncing ourselves on the agreement before we've demonstrated whether Iran's going to live up to it and meet its commitments, I think, may be premature. Second, there are some elements that you know we can certainly talk about. Um, there is a uh, in it a, as I read it at least, Mr. Chairman, um, a compliance requirement that is on a fairly tight uh, hair trigger. That is, if there is a violation that is detected, um, then within five days, uh, sanctions would have to be reimposed. We've had situations under the JAPOA where we have identified things and actually ranking member Menendez uh, mentioned a few of them, which we believe were violations of the JPOA. The Iranians believe they were not. There may be circumstances where it's a good faith difference. We have a mechanism in place under the JAPOA to litigate those disputes and in every instance, When Iran was doing something that we thought was problematic, it was litigated, and they ceased their activities, for example, the IR5. So that would be another uh, concern. And then finally, one of the concerns, Mr. Chairman, just to uh, put this on the table, too, while we're talking about it is, uh, as I read it, it does rule out uh, a JAPOA extension. And again, it is our strong intent to try and reach uh, a basic agreement in March and then to conclude all of the technical details by June. But I would not want to prematurely rule out Um, And in a sense arbitrarily any extensions if we're on the verge of completing the technical details in June But still have I's to dot and T's to cross. We might want a little more time. That's at least possible
5: I wouldn't want to rule that out now And by all accounts Iran remains a state sponsor of terror and one of the world's foremost violators of human rights Uh, These discussions have been involving the regime on nuclear issues Uh, The regime's record as a state sponsor of terrorism and human rights uh, continues to be abysmal but if if the refusal to impose additional sanctions while we discuss the nuclear issues, uh, would you support additional sanctions on uh, that target, the regime, uh, in areas of terrorism and human rights violations? Yes.
3: Uh, Under Secretary Cohen can address this. I would just say very simply that we have been vigorously implementing sanctions in other areas against Iran, including uh, on the question of human rights, including on the question of support for terrorism, but maybe Under Secretary Cohen can address that.
4: And just very briefly, Senator, just three weeks ago or so, we imposed some additional sanctions with respect to Iran's violation of human rights, the use of technology firms in Iran to stifle dissent. In the period since the JPOA has gone into effect, among the hundred or so sanctions that, we've been, that we have imposed have been 15 focused specifically on Iran's support for terrorism.
1: Thank you, and uh, we would certainly love uh, input, uh, love engagement like you're doing with Iran. We'd like the same respect. So if you have some details you'd like to talk with us about, that would be fine. Uh, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr.
6: Chairman, very much. Um, now, I've heard that the right agreement here includes a one-year breakout period, uh, duration of 15 to 20 years uh, would be the agreement. Um, Now the Iraq reactor would be neutralized and there would be a full scope safeguards under the additional protocol. Uh, Those are the highlights the way I understand it. Are the Iranians willing to give up the heavy water reactor at Iraq?
3: Senator, I think you've, you've covered many of the key details that would be uh, required. There's, there's some others. Um, the short answer is that unless Iraq uh, is uh, neutralized so that it is not able to produce uh, plutonium that can be reprocessed for a weapon, we won't have a deal. There are different ways of doing that. Uh, and one of the things that our negotiators are looking at and the folks who, uh, under, the scientists who know the technical details, are the different ways of doing that. That's part of the negotiations. But the bottom line is absent satisfaction on Iraq, we will not have a deal. Have they agreed to take
6: Iraq's heavy water processing capacity off the table? As of this moment, no. They have not. Uh, And on Fordow, uh, your testimony pointed out that before the JPOA, Iran had about 200 kilograms of 20% enriched uranium uh, in a form that could quickly be enriched into a weapons grade level uh, and it produced much of the material at the Fordow facility. Um, you say they no longer have that capacity. Uh, what do the Iranians then expect to do with their civilian nuclear sites, specifically the underground facility at Fordow, under the agreement that you're negotiating right now?
3: Um, without getting into the uh, details of what we're negotiating, but again, we'd be happy to discuss that in a, in a closed setting. Um, again, uh, in, the, in the case of Fordow, uh, any agreement uh, has to eliminate... Uh, its production of uh, 20 percent fissile material in a permanent fashion so uh, that's something that would be critical to the agreement
6: okay now i wrote a book back in 1982 on the international atomic energy agency and i concluded at the time that it was a paper tiger in terms of its ability to put in place the kinds of intrusive inspections uh, that would ensure that there was not a breakout Uh, and so What I'd like to do here is just to give you a chance just to talk about uh, the inspections regime that other countries abide by and what Iran is now negotiating. So right now, 122 countries have agreed to allow the IAEA to inspect nuclear sites anytime they want with as little as two hours advance notice. Uh, Can tell us a little bit then about what the IAEA inspectors can do in terms of visiting Bordeaux and Natanz and other facilities, uh, if they want to go in with no notice, essentially, which is what the other 122 countries allow to happen. Uh,
3: That is exactly the kind of thing, again, without getting into the specifics and the details, exactly the kind of thing we would be striving to achieve. That, in fact, any agreement with Iran would require uh, the kind of access, monitoring, uh, and transparency that actually would put Iran in a place uh, that's exceptional, that no other country Uh, actually has to abide by, precisely because uh, over these many years, as has been alluded to, they have forfeited the trust and confidence of the international community. So we would be looking not only at the additional protocol, uh, but other steps, which again I can uh, talk about in a a different setting, uh, that would give us and give our partners confidence uh, that we had all along, uh, in effect, the production and supply chain, uh, the mines, the mills, the centrifuge production facilities. Uh, and then the uh, uranium and uh, plutonium facilities, if any, themselves, that we had access. And also, this would require um, access to um, military facilities. Uh, Parchin uh, is something that would requ- we'd require access to. And I should add— So what are they telling you about Parchin right now? In so again, I don't— Their
6: willingness to allow for IAEA inspectors to go into that site.
3: What I'd like to do, with your permission, is to leave any of the specific details of where we are in the negotiations, including what— they've expressed a willingness to do, and thus far not do, to a uh, a classified briefing, which we'd be happy to provide. We'll bring you up to date on that.
6: I think it's very important for the United States to understand exactly what will be the level of intrusiveness into each one of these sites. And and finally, although there are so many things that we can talk about here, uh, it has been reported that both Saudi Arabia and Jordan are interested in pursuing nuclear cooperation agreements with the United States. Um, How will we be able to convince those countries to agree not to demand the right to enrich uranium as part of those agreements if we allow Iran to continue to maintain its enrichment capability as part of a final agreement? And I put that in the context of the 123 agreement, and the Chairman already referred to this, the 123 agreement with the United Arab Emirates. which again, I thought was a mistake, as I think a mistake would be made if we had an agreement with Saudi Arabia, for example. It just will trigger a proliferation cascading effect uh, if there is not kind of a sense that there is equal treatment. So could you talk about that a little bit as well? I think it's very important for us to go to the next step in terms of what uh, is the reaction of Saudi Arabia if Iran has this capability.
3: First of all, Senator, let me just note your own leadership on these issues and the work that you've done over the years on this. We have a very clear policy of trying to prevent the spread of enrichment and reprocessing uh, technology, and we're working to discourage the proliferation uh, of enrichment technology beyond countries that already uh, possess it. Um, I think any um, resolution we uh, reach with Iran will be exactly the opposite of a model for any other country. I don't think any country would want to follow the path that Iran has followed Uh, to get to where it is, which has involved uh, a decade or more of increasingly onerous sanctions, isolation, uh, and an economy uh, in tatters. Um, That doesn't make any sense. So I think um, Iran is actually the counter model, and it sends a very strong signal to the rest of the world that this is not the path to pursue uh, if you want to have a peaceful nuclear program and get the most advanced technology, which we can provide under a 1-2-3 agreement, for example. So I, I think it's actually very powerful in the other, other direction.
6: We can pursue this further, but, again, I think a no-enrichment policy is the correct policy, um, especially as it sets a precedent for Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and others, uh, and especially since the Iranians are clearly intending on building 8 to 10 nuclear power plants as they are flaring 10 nuclear power plants worth of uh, uh, nuclear electricity, generating capacity on a daily basis. Okay, so we just have to understand fully what the long-term implications are. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: Thank you. Senator Rasso. Uh,
7: thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary uh, Cohen uh, in a meeting in the White House last week, the President said he thought the chances of a deal were, about, well, were less than 50 percent. I think you said exactly the, the same thing uh, today. You know, when you look at a- odds like that, I think it's important for us to Take into consideration the high possibility that this does not succeed, and uh, what we need to do in case an arrangement agreement isn't isn't received isn't isn't able to come out. So I'd, you know, you had said that the, if uh, if there is not a deal, that the Congress and this administration would move quickly uh, to enact new sanctions if Iran were to walk away from the talks. So. You know, wh- could you talk about some specific additional sanctions that you think the administration would at least support uh, imposing on Iran if the diplomatic talks fall apart and uh, nothing's achieved?
4: Senator, um, we have, as you know, over the course of the last several years, focused in a number of important areas on, on Iran's ability to sell its oil, uh, on its access to the international financial system, on its ability to trade uh, and on investments in Iran's uh, various sectors, I think all of those issues would be ones that we would explore uh, and uh, and likely focus on additional sanctions. I'm not prepared to tell you you know specifically today what the what the detailed sanctions would be, but we but I think those broad areas, which have been, I think quite effective, would be areas where yeah. we'd be... We'd well, I think, I, I think you,
7: you make the point where you said, well, those are things we'd be interested in exploring. And, and so the, then the question that naturally leads to is, how long would it actually take until sanctions were imposed that would actually have a meaningful impact uh, on what's happening?
4: Yeah. I, I think that's an important question. I know that, that, uh, that Ranking Member Menendez uh, commented earlier about the, the phase-in time for a certain sanctions. And for some legislation in the past, we have had relatively delayed phase-ins particularly as we start to do sort of brand new things in other areas the phase-in time has been actually quite short and and to cite just one example uh, with the ndaa of 2012 there was a uh, requirement that we block all iranian financial institutions so impose Mm -hmm. sanctions on iranian financial institutions that was implemented uh, in, a, in a matter of weeks after that legislation was enacted. And so there, is, there are precedents where new sanctions, new legislative sanctions can go into effect very quickly. Executive sanctions, when we act by executive order, they're immediately effective, and so they go into effect you know, the, the day that they are announced. And just one final point, even with sanctions that have some delayed phase in, business and industry adjust before the effective date of the sanctions. So if it's a, you know, a two month phase in, you see financial institutions, you see businesses
8: mm-hmm.
4: you know, immediately beginning to scale back their activities so that they're not caught up short when the sanctions go into effect. So we can impose sanctions very, very quickly uh,
7: if need be. And since the combined impact of sanctions, not just by the United States, but by others has a initial impact on the ground, uh, have there been these discussions with uh, P5 plus one about the imposing sanctions uh, across Sorry. the board that would snap back into place.
4: We have an ongoing conversation with our P5 Plus One partners and others, frankly, around the world about sanctions and about you know, what the future may hold. So I I don't want to get into any of the, the details of those conversations, but absolutely. Uh,
7: a number of us have just come back uh, from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from Israel, have visited with members of the Free uh, Syrian Army. Uh, And and this has to do with what happens when sanction relief occurs and where the money is spent that goes uh, to Iran. Uh, What we have heard from the commanders on the ground of the Free Syrian Army is that when sanctions were relieved in the past, money went into Iran, which then immediately went to uh, help finance uh, efforts uh, with Assad in in Syria, uh, that Assad at this point is buying uh, oil and, and, and food staples from ISIS, so an indirect funding. Through Assad to, to ISIS, and I just, you know, wondering how this all impacts and how you see what's happening there on the ground. At least what we've heard on our overseas trip and visiting with the Free Syrian Army.
4: Yeah, I, I have heard similar reports. It's it's terribly concerning, and uh, no question about it. I will say that the our sense of what Iran has been doing with the funds that to which it has been given access uh, that were otherwise frozen under the JPOA is primarily to use those to try to prop up its economy, which is, as, as Deputy Secretary Blinken said, in tatters. Um, but we have been very much focused on Iran's support for terrorist organizations, Iran's support for the Syrian regime uh, you know, throughout this process, and we'll continue to, uh, to take action where we see an ability to do so.
7: Thank you. And, and because, of obviously, Hamas, Hezbollah, all of those are Absolutely, Mr. Blankin, if I could uh, visit with you about uh, regional proliferation. The other thing that we had heard that uh, and I think uh, Senator Markey talked about if, if, if Iran is able to proliferate, who else can do and what the other issues are, and interests are going to be. I mean, we heard that Saudi Arabia is going to be interested in pursuing uh, either a development program or perhaps even purchasing uh, nuclear weapons from Pakistan. And I'm just, there is that concern. Uh, that this could result in actually, instead of eliminating nuclear arms in the area, resulting in 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 an escalation in a nuclear arms race uh, in the Middle East. Can can you comment on that?
3: Yes, Senator, thank you. I think what's most likely to lead to a nuclear arms race in the region is Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would, uh, I think, open the floodgates and we would uh, uh, go down a path that uh, no one wants to go down. Um, As I suggested earlier, it's our judgment that um, what Iran has done Uh, is hardly going to be a model for any other country. I don't think any other country um, would want to subject itself uh, to the tremendous burdens that Iran has had imposed on it by the international community over the last decade or more for its uh, efforts to pursue a nuclear weapon or the material uh, to make one. Uh, The isolation, the sanctions, uh, the state of its economy, uh, the message that that sends uh, to everyone else is this is not what you want to do. What you want to do uh, is to respect international norms and indeed, we're prepared to work with countries uh, that do that uh, also to provide for them for peaceful purposes, the most advanced uh, technology uh, for their nuclear power programs, uh, but not enrichment and reprocessing uh, capabilities. So I think actually the message it sends is uh, one of following international norms, not uh, violating them grossly. Well, I would just say, as, as
7: a final thought, it, I agree completely with you. If Iran has a nuclear weapon, that will happen. Uh, the question is if they are allowed to enrich uranium at a level, that far exceeds what they really need for uh, energy use, and there is a a, a, mathematical calculation of how much they need for the number of energy, plus the potential of how much they want to enrich, how many centrifuges are involved, and the concern that even the approval of that could result in this additional proliferation and arms race.
3: Our entire focus is on ensuring that, as a practical matter, they are not able to produce uh, enough fissile material for a bomb in less than one year. Uh, That would give us plenty of time uh, to take action with the international community, or alone if necessary, uh, to counter uh, that effort. I should say, we're being very conservative about this, at least in in my judgment. As you know, uh, it's not just the fissile material. It's having a weapon. Uh, It's the assessment of our uh, intelligence community that they were pursuing a weaponization program, at least until 2003. Uh, the evidence suggests that they stopped then, but this is something we obviously remain very vigilant about. It's also the capacity to deliver a weapon uh, on a missile and being able to mate that uh, together. But what is most visible, what is most easy, uh, what, what is easiest to uh, see, account for, measure, is the fissile material, um, and that's why uh, in this agreement, what we're focused on is making sure that the constraints uh, are so severe and the access so exceptional that we would be able to see if they tried to break out and we would have plenty of time to do something about it.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I understand that uh, uh, Senator Perdue has deferred to Senator Johnson uh, for time reasons. I would say to the audience, we very much appreciate you being here and listening. Uh, We don't appreciate uh, being involved in the dialogue, so if you could keep uh, comments to yourself and with that, I'm sorry I'm going to the wrong side here, I guess. Senator Murphy. Uh, Thank you very much,
8: uh, Senator Corker. Congratulations on assuming the chairmanship. I know you and Senator Menendez have had uh, a very constructive working relationship over the last two years and I trust that will continue. Um, I wanted to accept your invitation and focus some of my questions on the jurisdiction of this committee and then maybe sneak in a a last question on sanctions. Um, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, as you you know, I've been one of the strongest proponents of Congress exercising its constitutional authority and responsibility when it comes to being co-equal with the uh, executive branch uh, with respect to the management of foreign affairs. That's why I think it's um, absolutely uh, essential a requirement that this committee continue our work on an AUMF. The Constitution spells out very clearly that it's our responsibility to declare war, uh, and thus we need to weigh in on what is happening today in Syria and Iraq. Um, But the Constitution is also equally clear uh, as to when the Congress has the responsibility to weigh in on international agreements entered into uh, on behalf of the United States by the executive. And there's a longstanding precedent on what constitutes a treaty requiring the U.S. Congress to weigh in and what constitutes a non-treaty obligation entered into by the executive. Um, And I think it's important for us to understand the difference between the two, because I accept the uh, caution that uh, Secretary Blinken made to us about a new precedent that we might be setting uh, about weighing in on this agreement and what it would mean for future agreements. And I also worry about our ability, just in the current political context, to have a reasonable, productive debate uh, on a international agreement of this import I and mean, the fact is is that we can't even approve a treaty recognizing disability rights uh, we have an agreement on illegal arms trafficking that was opposed only by Iran North Korea and Syria um, at its inception and we can't even begin a discussion about that treaty here. And so I worry about our ability to process this, um, but I do understand the concerns that um, the chairman is raising. And so I, I wanna maybe direct a few questions to our um, witnesses about the concerns. The, the first um, is that um, a suspension of sanctions as part of a agreement with the Iranians it has the effect of being uh, a permanent uh, end to the sanctions, thus essentially effectively eliminating our ability to weigh in with a statutory removal of the sanctions. So I guess I'll ask Secretary Cohen this question. Um, Do you believe that if um, an agreement was reached, that led to a suspension of the sanctions, that that would be an effective unraveling of the sanctions? Or do you believe that if the Iranians didn't live up to the early stages of that agreement, we would have the ability to put back in place sanctions that were suspended? I think it's a legitimate concern that um, Senator Corker is raising, and be good to hear your thoughts.
4: Absolutely, it is a legitimate concern, and it is one that is, I think, foremost in the minds uh, as, this agreement is, uh, is being negotiated, which is that the, whatever relief there would be from sanctions, from our own sanctions, as well as from the sanctions that have been imposed through U, the UN Security Council, would be in relation to steps taken by Iran. So as, as Secretary Blinken noted earlier, the idea here is for phased sanctions relief phased and tied to specific milestones that the Iranians would, would have to meet. That is in part designed to ensure that if the Iranians don't meet those milestones, we can reimpose the sanctions quickly because they will have, will have been suspended, not terminated. And it is important that our international partners as part of this agreement are buying into that same phased approach so that if Iran doesn't meet its milestones, if it doesn't fulfill its commitments, not only we're all, we're, will our sanctions go back into effect, others will as well, and they're all committed to reimposing the sanctions. But it's, so I think it is a legitimate concern, but one that we're trying
8: to address by the way that the agreement is being constructed. And it was a legitimate concern raised about the JPOA um, that did not end up coming true. People said that this would be an unraveling of the sanctions, and I think even our loudest critics now uh, accept that those sanctions can be reinstituted because they've held together. Um, uh, Secretary uh, Blinken, just talk about what happens within the P5 plus one if we reach an agreement that our partners are enthusiastic about, that they are able to get domestic support for, and then the Congress disapproves it what happens in that situation in which we have an agreement that our partners have consented to uh, and the administration has consented to but congress rejects Uh, senator
3: i think you're 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 putting the spotlight on a fundamental point that's very important i think to keep in mind just as a general proposition which is that uh, we're not the only ones who have a vote uh, in this Uh, it is uh, our partners who are critical to uh, sustaining and if it comes to that uh, actually increasing sanctions and so Working to keep them on board uh, has been a critical uh, effort uh, by the president um, repeatedly uh, over these years. Um, there are several partners uh, beyond the P5 plus one, for example, uh, who, um, for whom impl- uh, implementing these sanctions is a real economic burden uh, or poses um, uh, real burdens. Um, keeping them on board. Uh, is going to be an effort. So if we wind up in a situation where we've reached an agreement that all of our partners believe uh, is in their security interests, our security interests, the security interests of other partners beyond those making the agreement, uh, and then uh, that agreement was to be in some fashion um, unraveled uh, here, I think what we what would result is um, the sanctions regime that so many in this chamber have labored so hard to put in place that would likely unravel. So far from being able to implement additional sanctions, we would be unable probably to implement the existing sanctions regime. Iran would be off in that sense, uh, potentially scot-free. That's, a, that's at least a danger uh, that we would have to grapple with.
8: Secretary Blinken, one question on sanctions. Um, uh, as a, a um, potential tool at the negotiating table, consider a resolution from the United States Congress stating our clear intent upon the failure of negotiations to reach fruition, uh, to enact the kind of crippling sanctions that we're all beginning a discussion about today. Clearly, it would be non-binding, but would put the majority of the Senate on record, stating our intention to move very quickly and expeditiously with sanctions. Um, would that resolution be a violation of the JPOA, uh, and would it be helpful to your negotiating position over the course of the next few months? Um,
3: I don't believe it would be a violation, and I think it would be consistent uh, with uh, the approach that we've taken, uh, enabling us uh, both to uh, you know, make clear what would follow if uh, the Iranians are, uh, do not reach uh, an agreement, um, and at the same time, uh, not uh, putting us in a position where we risk uh, destabilizing the uh, strong coalition that we built to uh, to impose sanctions. So it sounds, at least on the surface, that that would be consistent uh, with the approach that we're taking.
8: Thank you very much, Mr.
1: Chairman. Senator Johnson.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like
9: to thank Senator Purdue for switching uh, positions with me here. Uh, Mr. Blanken, just reviewing UN Security Council resolutions, uh, uh, the goal of uh, there's certainly a requirement of uh, UN Resolution 1696 was to ask or call for Iran to suspend enrichment of uranium. Uh, 1737, same same uh, requirement, suspend enrichment. 1747 <laughs> stated that the nuclear program must be verified as only peaceful, and I'll come back to that. Uh, Resolution 1803, Iran must halt its enrichment. Uh, 1835 basically reaffirmed the, fir- the uh, previous four UN resolutions in 1929 again calls for the halt of uh, enrichment by Iran. Who or at what point in time did we abandon that requirement?
3: Senator, thank you. I think um, what we know is and what we've seen is that uh, Iran has mastered the fuel cycle. We can't eliminate that knowledge. Nothing we do can do that. We could not uh, sanction away that knowledge. We can't bomb it away. They've mastered it. So in our judgment, what is critical to our security And that uh, of our partners is uh, to establish uh, a comprehensive solution that gives us the confidence because of the extraordinarily stringent restrictions on that program, as well as the exceptional access that inspectors would have, that as a practical matter, they cannot produce the fissile material uh, to make a bomb. That is the way to get at the concerns that motivated uh, the UN Security Council. It's
9: a pretty simple question. When did we abandon the goal
3: of not allowing them to enrich? Uranium. In the, in, the, in the course of uh, the negotiations with them, uh, I think it became clear, uh, not only to us, uh, but also to all of our partners, uh, that Iran uh, was not going to give up, as a practical matter, some very limited forms of enrichment uh, in the event of an, of an agreement. So, so that was, again, that the, knowledge can't the be... The JAPOA, uh, basically, from. we abandoned that, correct? In the course of the negotiations, and the, and the JAPOA uh, foresees... Uh, a final resolution that includes an extremely limited and constrained uh, enrichment capacity. Uh,
9: Mr. Cohen, in your testimony you said there is no higher priority than to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, and you said the goal of the negotiation was to, and I believe this is your quote, guarantee that Iran cannot obtain a nuclear weapon. As long as they are enriching uranium, how, how can you possibly guarantee that they will not obtain a nuclear weapon?
4: Uh, Senator, the- intention and, and uh, is consistent with what uh, Secretary Blinken has said is to ensure at, if there is a deal to be had here that the, the timeline for, uh, for breakout is such that we would be in a position to respond uh, so that uh, if Iran does not adhere to its commitments under, uh, under an agreement, will be able to take action to ensure that they do not obtain a nuclear that, that weapon. That would
9: be military action then. So in other words, give ourselves enough time to conduct military action so they cannot obtain a nuclear weapon. Is that basically the administration's policy?
4: I think there are a variety of, of steps that could be taken uh, upon the detection that Iran was not uh, adhering to its commitments.
9: We, we, we've had testimony, testimony before this committee how incredibly expensive it is to enrich uranium. And also that if you have a peaceful nuclear program, there's absolutely no reason to enrich uranium because you can readily, you can obtain it readily in the uh, open market. Is that not correct? That is correct. With that in mind, Mr. Blinken, you said earlier that you can't imagine any other country would subject themselves to the isolation, the sanctions, the harm to its economy that that Iran is subjecting itself to. So let me just ask a simple question. Why is Iran subjecting itself to the isolation, the sanctions, and the harm to the economy? If it were not other than to obtain a nuclear weapon?
3: Uh, Senator, I think that's an excellent question. I think what we believe is that they clearly had uh, military aspirations for their program and indeed, at least until 2003, uh, were pursuing weaponization uh, activities. Um, It's – one can certainly ask why a country that is so rich in oil resources would need an expansive uh, nuclear program, even a civil nuclear program. Those are all extremely good questions. Here's what they say. Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, I agree with any of this. Um, they say that they want to devote uh, more of their oil resources to exports and remain energy self-sufficient. Hence, a nuclear power program. They say but, they but want again, to,
9: which they could obtain the, the material on yes. the
3: open market. That's exactly that's exactly right. So, and so that's so why. It,
9: so again, isn't the answer obvious that they can make this pain go away yeah. tomorrow? It, they I, could end the isolations. They could end the sanctions. They could improve their economy by just suspending, ending, halting their nuclear enrichment program, but they're not doing that.
3: Absolutely, and that's something that we pointed out, we've pointed out to them repeatedly. So I, how, do we ever, how do we ever so
9: have a successful negotiation? How do we ever get a good deal the, the, with a with, with regime that is behaving this way?
3: So I think a few things have happened. And again, this is uh, the subject of a lot of analysis and uh, assessments, uh, and also this is something we can discuss Uh, in a different setting Um, and I'm not uh, vouching in any way shape or form for the Iranians or what they believe or what their needs are but I do think that what's developed over time is uh, a sense of national pride about the program a huge investment ironically made in the program and a desire to sustain some pieces of it from our perspective What's critical to our security and that of our partners is that if they are going to have a nuclear power program of any kind, it is so constrained, so limited, so inspected that it cannot, as a practical matter, be used to produce material uh, for a nuclear weapon. And it would give us plenty of time to do something about it if they did.
9: One one final question. Why does the President of the United States believe he is the sole person, the only representative of the United States, that can actually decide whether or not... The deal with Iran is a good deal or a bad deal for our entire nation? Why, why does the President believe he's the only person that should have that authority, is not believe that this uh, is really more like a treaty that would require ratification uh, by, by, by Congress?
3: Senator, I don't think that, uh, that, that, he, that he believes that or that we believe that. Indeed, as we've uh, discussed uh, earlier, um, one of the most powerful levers we have to make sure that Iran makes good on any commitments it makes under uh, an accord, if one is reached, is precisely uh, the ability of Congress, uh, after Iran has made good on its commitments, uh, to actually end uh, big pieces of the sanctions regime that Congress has put in place. That's a tremendous power. Congress has to be fully part and parcel of doing this. Just as uh, Congress was critical to establishing the sanctions regime, just as we seek uh, these consultations going forward on the details, at the end of this, uh, the role is absolutely critical. So in effect, uh, you will have a very strong vote, and I think the Iranians are very well aware. That's why we want to keep ending, the ending part of the sanctions as opposed to suspending to the far end of the process to hold Iran to whatever commitments it makes. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank
10: you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, I have been a strong supporter of the administration's uh, diplomatic efforts with Iran and the P5-plus-1. We all share the goal of an Iran with no nuclear weapons, and the termination of any such intent diplomatically rather than militarily is preferable to everyone. I think the JPOA has been a success. There were those who predicted it would lead to an unraveling of the sanctions regime. It didn't. There were those who predicted it would lead to a surge in the Iranian economy. It didn't, there were those who predicted that Iran would not meet its obligations under the JPOA, and they largely have, and I'm sure in Iran, there were those predicting the U.S. would not meet our obligations under the JPOA, and we have. I think skeptics at the origin now realize that the JPOA has largely been successful. But with respect to a final deal, I have a series of very significant concerns. First, a deep skepticism about Iran. Within the last 48 hours, the U.S. has had to position ships in the Red Sea to potentially engage in an evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a, a a very, very serious contingency that is likely enough that we've had to position military assets there. All understand that the Houthi effort to topple the government in Yemen has been supported and funded through Tehran. Um, Tehran has basically turned the Assad regime into a puppet state. They have done that in Iraq for years. They are currently involved in activities to destabilize the governments of nations as near as Bahrain and as far away as Morocco. So separate and apart from this nuclear negotiation, Iran is engaged in activity to today that should make us be deeply skeptical about their intentions. Second, I'm worried about the negotiation and the potential consequences of it. The United States was engaged in a negotiation with Libya over the dismantling of their nuclear program, and they gave up their nuclear weapons. Now, Libya is no good example for anything now, but imagine the chaos of Libya if the weapons had survived. We were involved in a deal, and it dismantled their weapons program. The United States was involved in a nuclear negotiation with North Korea, where we asked them to, seize, uh, to to freeze their program. They cheated, and they have nuclear weapons now. I want this deal to look more like the deal with Libya a dismantlement than trying to make a deal about, well, let's just freeze it for all with a, with a nation that has proven to be very untrustworthy, because I think if it's only that kind of a deal, the end result is more likely to be the North Korean situation. Iran has made it pretty plain in the course of this JPA negotiation. They, this is now not a negotiation about Iran dismantling a nuclear weapons program, it's a negotiation about trying to buy a year of time. To have an alarm bell ring and then for us to act. So we're already going down a path in this negotiation, in my view, where it's more like the Korea—it's more like the uh, the Korean scenario than the Libyan scenario. The number of centrifuges that are being contemplated—I have a different point of view than Senator Johnson. Some residual enrichment capacity by Iran does not trouble me, and that that could be part of the deal. But it would have to be a capacity that is consistent only with a civilian nuclear program and not civilian plus a whole lot more that could only be used for a weaponry program. And the kinds of things I've been hearing from the negotiating team about the number of centrifuges contemplated in this deal, this is not consistent with a purely civilian program. And finally, the point that was made by, I think it was uh, Senator Gardner, or no, Senator Barrasso, this is gonna trigger an arms race in the region. Uh, our, Our allies and others who aren't our allies are telling us this. And if all we get with a deal like this Is Iran agreeing to, uh, well, we'll give you a year before we break out, then other nations are gonna start trying to say, okay, I gotta be able to have nuclear capacity within a year. They're gonna have to engage in those behaviors. Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, if it's just a year we're buying, they will undertake similar activity. I think Congress has to weigh in on a final deal. I support the JPOA, I support the administration's diplomacy, but I think we have to weigh in And the reason we have to, and I understood Senator Murphy's point constitutionally, he's right about many such deals, but he's not right, I don't think, about this deal. Because this deal is fundamentally about one thing on our side. Under what conditions will a congressionally imposed sanctions regime be dismantled? If the the administration was negotiating about other things and saying we're not going to touch the congressionally imposed sanctions regime at all, then congressional approval wouldn't be warranted. But there is no condition under which you're going to bring a deal back that doesn't involve Iran wanting relief from congressional sanctions. And so since this deal is fundamentally the only real lever we have is, is the congressionally designed sanctions regime effectively implemented by the administration that has brought Iran to the table. The only lever in this negotiation is the congressionally imposed sanctions regime. And I don't think that the while, – while limited waivers were certainly contemplated, I don't think a blanket suspension for a period of time was contemplated by that language. And so I do think it is very important for Congress to be able to weigh in onto this deal, especially given the actor that we're dealing with. Now, a couple of quick questions. How confident are you for either of you uh, that the United States or the IAEA can detect clandestine nuclear sites? I understand newer and newer iterations of technology are quieter, quieter, harder to detect. How confident are you on that? And talk about the way you're approaching the inspection, especially of clandestine sites in this negotiation.
3: Uh, thank you very much, Senator. And I can also address some of the other um, uh, important comments you made. Um, what we know is this. Um, the access that has already been achieved under the interim agreement under the JAPOA is beyond anything we've had. And that has already enhanced the ability of the IEA, and indeed our own people, uh, to have a better understanding of uh, what Iran is doing and what it's not doing. Any agreement that we reach, and this is something, again, we can go into in a classified setting, uh, would have to have more stringent requirements still uh, in terms of monitoring, uh, in terms of access, in terms of transparency, all along the production line. So will we have 100% certitude? Uh, No, I don't think that's possible. Uh, Can we significantly uh, increase our ability and the ability of the international community to detect uh, an effort by Iran to develop a covert program or to break out Uh, from its overt program, I think we can be uh, in a much stronger place, clearly a much stronger place if we're able to get the agreement we want, uh, than we even are under the JAPOA, which is already better than it's ever been, and clearly in a much better place than we would be if there is no agreement or if we were in the pre-JAPOA world. So this is something we'll build on. By the way, I should have mentioned earlier in response to um, uh, several questions, including Senator Markey, one of the other reasons that I don't think countries are going to rush to do what Iran did is precisely because... Uh, of the limitations uh, in terms of transparency, in terms of inspections, in terms of monitoring that will be imposed on their nuclear program in the event uh, of some kind of resolution. That's something that again, uh, most other countries will not want to live with because this goes well, this would have to go well beyond uh, what's required of of other countries. Um, I would just say um, also very quickly, uh, Senator, we share your concerns and the concerns of other members of this committee uh, of Iran's actions in other areas, that's precisely why We are vigorously implementing sanctions and taking other actions uh, to counter and push back uh, on their efforts to destabilize uh, other countries, on their efforts to proliferate, on their efforts to support terrorism. That will not end even if we get uh, an accord with them on the nuclear program.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Very good, thank you. Senator Plouk.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The administration was very clear, uh, Mr. Cohen, and thank you guys for being here today. At the start of uh, JAPOA, that um, the sanction relief would be very limited but the enforcement would be very stringent. Uh, Yet in the last six months, we've only had really one public announcement of a sanction enforcement action. Can you uh, speak to that and uh, speak to, you know, has Iran stopped its illicit um, procurement efforts and uh, attempts to bypass our energy and financial sanctions?
4: Uh, Certainly, Senator. As I noted, since the JPO went into effect, we have imposed sanctions on close to 100 entities that are related to Iran, uh, including uh, some just last, uh, the end of December, um, a set of uh, individuals and companies involved in trying to assist Iran in getting access to US dollars, which remains forbidden. Uh, We have had a series of of actions taken over the last several months, some in August, some, some previously. We act when we have the information available to us to take the public designation actions uh and announce them that's the tip of the iceberg we have been continue continuing to work on ensuring that the sanctions remain in place and remain firmly in place throughout this period as we were previously and that means things that don't quite get as much attention as a designation action but working directly with partners around the world, reaching out directly to companies that we think might be getting close to the line uh, and uh, making sure that they understand the peril that, they are, uh, that they're courting. So there have been innumerable actions uh, well beyond the 100 designations that we've taken that have all together, I think, uh, resulted in the sanctions remaining in place, remaining robust, over the course of this JPOA. Uh, And as uh, as Senator, uh, uh, I forget if it was Senator Murphy or Senator Kaine uh, noted, uh, there were a lot of people who questioned whether the sanctions architecture would remain in place. Uh, I think we have managed to keep uh, our sanctions regime very firmly in place and have managed to ensure that the pressure on Iran from the sanctions that have been developed Uh, in Congress, with the administration, with our partners, uh, continue to apply that pressure uh, throughout this period and continue to provide the leverage that our negotiators need.
1: I'll yield a balance of my time. Thank Thank you, you. thank you very much. Senator Sheen.
11: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Um, and thank you both for being here. You know, Deputy Secretary Blinken, I, I certainly share the view that Um, It's important for us to keep our coalition together um, if we're going to be successful. And one concern that I have is to what extent um, we're going to be able to do that given what's happening with Russia. And so I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about what Russia is doing today. There's a, a notice of an agreement that Iran and Russia have just signed and... Um You know, clearly, uh, the sanctions that we've taken against Russia over Ukraine seems like it's going to have an impact on what's happening with Iran. So can you talk about Russia's willingness to continue to be part of this effort and to what extent we're seeing their commitment um, being reduced or not?
3: Um, at least as of this moment, Uh, what we have seen in the context of the negotiations with Iran is Russia continuing to play a constructive role. Um, And uh, I can see how that would be um, surprising. And indeed, one of the things that um, I think was a concern was whether Russia would, um, because of what we are uh, doing to impose severe penalties on it for its actions in Ukraine, because of uh, disputes uh, about other courses of action it's taken, including in Syria, uh, that this would somehow rebound in the nuclear negotiations. But I have to tell you that at least to date, as of now, uh, they continue to play uh, a constructive role. Uh, and they've been actually very helpful in uh, pushing Iran in the direction that it has to go in if we're going to get uh, any kind of uh, resolution. Uh, and David may want to address, I don't know, anything on the sanctions piece.
4: Yeah, I think we have, uh, I mean, as you know, Senator, imposed a whole set of very powerful sanctions on, on Russia. It has, uh, I think, we won't go into great detail on this here in this setting, but we've, it has had a very significant effect on the Russian economy and on, uh, I think, how they're perceiving uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, but I think uh, Secretary Blinken's right that it it has not, to our knowledge, uh, sort of bled over into the Iran negotiations.
11: Well, if you would um, talk a little bit more about that, because um, One of the things that I thought was very telling was when um, Russia canceled the missile deal with Iran uh, several years ago, and um, we've got Putin. I was just in an Armed Services Committee hearing upstairs where um, Dr. Brzezinski, former National Security Advisor, talked about Putin's comments around um, using nuclear weapons Um, during this um, Ukraine conflict and suggesting that um, that might be a possibility at some point. So, you know, can you, to what extent do we believe that uh, Russia continues to be very concerned about Iran developing a nuclear weapon and how is what's happening in Ukraine affecting that?
3: Uh, Senator, I think it it, it does share that concern, which I think explains uh, largely why it has been, at least again until now, a constructive partner uh, in the efforts uh, to make sure we put in place something that denies, as a practical matter, Iran the ability to develop material for a weapon. Um, You know, there have been reports uh, over the course of the uh, negotiations uh, of Iran starting to do deals – excuse me, Russia starting to do deals with Iran. None of that to date uh, has materialized. Uh, And indeed, if Russia or any other country seeks to evade uh, the sanctions, uh, I know that the uh, Treasury Department will come down on them as it has on sanctions violators throughout this process. Um, There's pressure on Russia uh, to look for uh, for new markets, new customers, new uh, countries with whom to engage, precisely because in Ukraine, uh, we have had a significant impact uh, on their uh, economy and on their ability uh, to do business in some areas. But again, at least as of now, within the context of the negotiations, uh, they remain a good partner. If I could just elaborate on,
4: on one point that uh, Secretary Blinken alluded to there. The, the first uh, reports of a potential Iran-Russia oil for goods deal um, came up, I think, in the fall of uh, 2013. Um, and at that point, uh, I recall testifying and saying, you know, if, if, uh, if Russia were to do such a thing that we would take action, we would impose sanctions. and. It was met, I think, with skeptical looks um, on the, the notion that we would ever impose sanctions on Russia. I think we have disabused certainly the Russians uh, of any uh, notion they may have that we would not take firm action under our sanctions authorities if they were to engage in behavior uh, that's sanctionable, including uh, working with the Iranians on an oil for goods deal.
11: Thank you. Can you also, shortly after the JPOA was negotiated, there were a, a um, a lot of noise in um, some of the European capitals about trade deals with Iran and trade um, delegations that were being sent to Iran. Can you talk about what's happening to date, if any of those have um, successfully negotiated any deals, assuming there was an agreement that would be reached and sanctions would be lifted?
4: Yeah. Uh, and I know, Senator, this has been a, a longstanding concern of yours and something that we have been watching very closely, as have our our colleagues at the State Department, we're not aware of any deals that have been struck in the event that a uh, negotiation is successful. And I will say that under our sanctions authority, executory contracts of that that sort, where you have an agreement that goes into effect when a future event occurs, are sanctionable. Uh, And we've made clear in all of our public messaging and all of our outreach. That a deal that is contingent upon a lifting of sanctions in the future is immediately sanctionable today.
11: And do we have any idea how many delegations have actually visited Tehran?
4: Uh, I don't have that number right at hand. There have certainly been, you know, quite a few that have visited, no question about that. Uh, but you know, we have we've tracked it. We have reached out on many occasions to to some of the sponsors of these trips, some of the entities that are involved, to make sure that they understand. Uh, What the what the rules of the world of the
12: rules of the road still are
11: Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Chairman.
1: Thank you senator flake Thank
12: you, Mr. Chairman, and thank the witnesses Um, Like uh, many in this room. I've been supportive of these negotiations. I applaud the administration for uh, Undertaking them. Uh, I think it's incumbent on us to look for every avenue Uh, we we often uh, say that, you know, the purpose of sanctions is to get parties to the table. They are at the table, and so I'm I'm uh, confused by the notion that some would want to uh, impose additional sanctions while negotiations are going on, uh, recognizing and stating that the purpose of sanctions is to bring people to the negotiating table. Uh, I, having said that, I'm, I'm as skeptical as anyone uh, that Iran will actually come through and and follow through on their agreements for the long term. And uh, I I, I certainly hope they do. I am as concerned as you are about breaking up this coalition that we have, uh, the P5 plus one. These sanctions have been effective because they are multilateral. And uh, I'm very concerned that uh, that will break up. This is successful. They are at the table because this has been Iran versus the West rather than Iran versus the US. And I think that's what we need to make sure continues. And so I I am sensitive to the administration's concern that Congress move ahead now uh, with additional sanctions even triggered that might upset the negotiations and fracture the coalition, the effective coalition that we have. Um, I I do believe that uh, if the administration thinks that, they can conclude an agreement and, and move on without Congress weighing in, however, at some point on that agreement, uh, that's a bridge too far. Um, it is our right and our responsibility uh, to weigh in on an ultimate agreement. And, and so I, I will be anxious to, to see the administration's formal response to the Chairman's uh, uh, proposal and look forward to those discussions as well. But um, I, I also, just as a side agreement, I, I'm glad to see that uh, uh, Treasury, and particularly OFAC, has lessened its load a bit uh, by changing our policy toward Cuba and that we aren't spending uh, so much time and resources uh, licensing Americans to travel to Cuba and, and can free up resources and time and effort uh, to make sure that these agreements and the, the sanctions that we currently have and future sanctions, if they should be rammed up that we have the, the, the resources to actually do that. But uh, I, I've, I've, a lot of the questions I had that I was going to ask have been answered already. So I would just uh, say that, uh, that I applaud the Chairman for putting forward the proposal he has in terms of Congress weighing in on an ultimate agreement. Uh, but I hope that we uh, are sensitive to these negotiations. Um, I, I do believe that uh, as many of us have discussed here, that if this JPOA uh, were to continue in perpetuity, it wouldn't be such a bad thing, as long as that breakout time is significant uh, enough uh, and that Iran isn't progressing toward a nuclear weapon. That's what our goal should be. And so I, I, I hope that we can stick with these negotiations. I hope that they're fruitful in the end, but uh, but I'm I'm certainly willing to – play as constructive a role as I can as a member of this committee to make sure that that happens. So, thank you,
1: Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Senator Coons.
13: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Thank you for holding this hearing and uh, for the constructive relationship that you and our Ranking Member have had uh, on this important issue. I, too, support the administration's strong and persistent and determined efforts uh, to bring Iran to the table and, congressionally enacted and administratively uh, implemented sanctions have made a critical difference uh, in changing the trajectory uh, of Iran's illicit nuclear weapons program. Like many of my colleagues, uh, I have deep suspicion of Iran's (laughs) intentions and actions uh, rooted in their human rights violations, their support for terrorism regionally and around the world, uh, developments even today uh, in Yemen that suggest they continue to engage in activities, uh, not just their illicit nuclear weapons program, but in many other uh, ranges. Uh, that should give us deep pause about uh, any agreement with them. Um, Nonetheless, uh, I think you've made significant progress uh, in getting them to the table and in continuing negotiations. Uh, But I will just reassert um, that no deal is better than a bad deal, and that a deal that we cannot ultimately uh, enforce and that we cannot ultimately live with in terms of where it uh, leaves us in the long term or the short term um, is worse uh, than no deal at all. And um, one of my core concerns uh, is whether or not we really will have the time to react, uh, we'll be really able to detect cheating uh, and leakage, and whether we will be able to sustain the sanctions coalition uh, that you have so successfully uh, convened and put into place uh, around the world. Uh, first, just a comment, if I might, uh, uh, to uh, uh, the nominee to be the the Deputy Director of the CIA. Um, My uh, congratulations on your great leadership and work in sanctions enforcement. Um, One positive of the omnibus that I think was not widely remarked on was an increase in the resources uh, for sanctions enforcement. Um, And whether it's the lightning of the load uh, that Senator Flake referenced, uh, or an increase in appropriated resources, uh, it is my hope um, and my confidence uh, that your successor will continue the same a determined and vigorous enforcement of sanctions that has been the hallmark of your time there. Um, let's get into, if we might, uh, both where this deal, as imagined and described, would leave us, and then where we are today. First, where it would leave us. One of my core concerns, expressed eloquently earlier by um, Senator Cain, uh, is that we are no longer negotiating uh, the dismantling of Iran's uh, nuclear infrastructure. We're negotiating for them to retain enough enrichment capacity and enough facilities that we have confidence that their breakout time is no less than a year. Um, What does that leave us in 2021 or shortly thereafter? I know the exact length of the agreement isn't yet finalized, but how do we avoid the regional proliferation that would come from an agreement that essentially locks in Iran as a threshold nuclear power? And how do we ensure that the message that the region and the world takes from this agreement isn't that we have assented to there being a threshold nuclear weapons capable power?
3: Um, Senator, thank you very much. Uh, Just very quickly, we, first of all, share uh, your deep suspicions about Iran and its actions. That's precisely why we're driving uh, to get a deal, uh, if we get one, that satisfies very stringent requirements. And we also fully agree with you and other members of the committee uh, that no deal is better than a bad deal. And indeed, there have been opportunities to take a bad deal. Some of our partners would have been willing uh, in some of these areas to settle uh, for things that we are simply not prepared and will not settle for. So we very much agree with the premise that you and other members of this committee have put forward. Uh, In terms of where um, Iran is uh, at the end of this, again, a few things. In our judgment, the one-year breakout time uh, is critical, but also very conservative. Um, Besides the material for a weapon, uh, they need a weapon itself, and so we will be vigilant about their efforts to return to weaponization. They need an ability to deliver the weapon, we will remain vigilant uh, about that. And then we're also being conservative because, quite frankly, it's a little bit uh, hard to imagine Iran or any other country breaking out in that fashion when they get to one weapon's worth of material. Uh, It would be much more logical if they were to go down that path to accumulate enough for several weapons, which would take much longer. But if we have the one-year period, uh, we believe that that would give us plenty of time, if it proves necessary, to take whatever steps are necessary to reverse that action. And it may be resuming economic pressure. It may be military action. Uh, or other things, in terms of where they're left, to come to your, your, your question. Um, they won't be, uh, in a sense, a, a threshold state uh, at the end of this. Um, they can't become a nuclear weapon state through uh, the front door, first of all. Uh, there will be a permanent ban on weaponization activity. They will permanently have to apply the additional protocol to ensure uh, to the best extent possible there's no undeclared program. There will be extensive IAEA safeguards on the declared program to ensure that uh, there is no uh, diversion. And for the duration, uh, obviously, we'll have the enhanced monitoring uh, and access. That will allow us to understand better than ever before, every nook, every cranny, every person, every place, every document involved in the program, so that even beyond the duration of the agreement, that knowledge will give us a much greater ability to detect whether they are trying uh, in any fashion to break out. And of course, at the end of whatever the duration is, we retain exactly the capacity we have today uh, to take action if they do something uh, that threatens uh, our security. We will be uh, no worse off, and indeed we will be infinitely better off, uh, given the knowledge that we will accumulate over time a- about their program. So the idea uh, you know, that Iran would be treated at the end of uh, this kind of agreement as a non-nuclear weapons state was actually one that was first advanced by the previous administration. And indeed our partners uh, around the world uh, – and this goes to, I think, uh, what um, uh, Senator Flake said a moment ago, the purpose of these sanctions has been to get Iran to the table in order to negotiate something that gives the international community confidence that any nuclear program Iran has is going to be for peaceful purposes, and should they de- uh, violate any of those commitments, we would be able to do something about it so that as an effective matter, as a practical matter, uh, they can't uh, break out. That's what we're striving to achieve, uh, and again, we're, we hope that we can get there by March.
13: And I'm concerned um, that centrifuge R&D also be a central part of the negotiations because uh, perhaps in the first phase of the JPOA, it wasn't as fully embraced as it should have been. My sense is that moving forward, it now is. Um, There are two different ways that they could expand their breakout time. One would be the accumulation of potentially fissile material. I think the JPOA has dealt with that effectively, and my understanding of the negotiations have that clearly in its sights. A core concern going forward is that they not be allowed in any way to engage in the sorts of R&D that would change their breakout time on the backside. Whether it's in 2021 or through illicit means, we do need to shut down any potential centrifuge R&D. Senator, we we,
3: we agree that R&D has to be a critical
4: component of any agreement.
13: Thank you. Go ahead, Mr. Chairman,
4: if I could for just uh, 10 seconds uh, in response to to Senator Coons. First, thank you for your your kind wishes, my new assignment. But I want to assure you members of this committee and anybody else who may be watching that the team that will remain at Treasury after I move along is completely committed to ensuring that the implementation of sanctions will be robust, probably even better without me being there. Um, But that team that has I've worked with very closely over the past several years is the team that will remain and I am certain that our sanctions will continue to be very, very vigorously enforced.
13: You've done a great job uh, with limited resources. I'm glad you'll now have even more resources and I wish you the best of luck in your new opportunity.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Paul.
14: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. When our founders uh, brought together our government, they brought together co-equal branches. And the hope was that they would pit ambition versus ambition and that the ambitions of Congress to maintain its power would be pitted against an executive who wanted more power and that this uh, back and forth would check and balance power. I'm glad to see today that there's some uh, exhibition that on both sides of the aisle, Congress is trying to pit their ambition against the executive and check the power of the executive. In saying this though, I believe that we've all concluded both Congress and the executive, that the final passage has to be done by Congress. We're arguing over waivers, suspension of waivers, and how long these waivers will be. If we could get to the crux of the argument, maybe there could be an agreement that could be found. The lesson to us, though, is when we rewrite this legislation, any legislating moving forward, we need to be a little more careful with waivers we give because they won't want to give them up very easily. As we move forward, I've been one who says new sanctions in the middle of negotiations is a huge mistake and may well break up the sanctions coalition, may well drive Iran away from the table. I've been one who wants sanctions because I don't want war, frankly. There are many on our side who often say, well, we don't need 535 generals. The president should just do what he needs to do in times of war. Well, I think there is a certain analogy to diplomacy that we don't need 535 negotiators but I also don't want to give up my right to approve of the negotiation. At the end of this, you want a suspension to go on, I don't know, maybe to the end of the President's term. If I'm the Iranians, why would I care to have, to go through all of this, to have sanctions relief for a year, a year and a half? You have greater ability to negotiate once you affirm which is the law that will have to pass the final negotiation. Just admit to it, I come to an agreement with Senator Corker admit to it what is the law, and then we could have permanent sanctions relief, trade with Iran again, if they will submit. They will be more assured of what we are doing and of the agreement if they know it has to pass us. I've heard whispered when I talk to people on your side, oh, those Republicans will never approve to anything. But as you've listened to us, all the way around, I think there is a nuance of opinion. I think there's several of us on this side who do not do not blanketly say, no, we will not vote to approve an agreement. But we want you to know that we have the right to vote to it, so you come and talk to us, so you talk to the chairman. I've been working with Senator Boxer on an agreement that wouldn't be new sanctions. It would basically be if they don't comply with the current agreement, sanctions would renew. But I also would like to marry that with what Senator Corker is talking about, is the admission and this will be admission and a signal, but, but it is the law that you will have to get our agreement in the end. Is there any kind of compromise in there? Maybe. but I think you need to talk to Senator Corker. Could there be something on the suspension that is a period of time? But I don't know what 90 days really gives you or 120 days. Do we could do years of negotiation to get 120 days of sanction relief? They want permanent relief. That is the carrot we're dangling, and we want something from them. We want them to live in a safe, non-nuclear world. That's what we want. So I agree, we keep asking for more and more. The centrifuges have to be part of this. All of it has to be part of this. But I don't know that you gain a lot in the administration by saying, we're not going to agree to what Senator Corker is saying. We're not going to agree that the final agreement has to be done by Congress. In doing so, you bring us to an impasse. There's a chance of an override of a veto, frankly. I am somebody who wants to work to find a middle ground, but I also want you to include some of the language that Senator Corker's talking about, admitting that not only just, we don't don't wanna be consulted. I don't want you to come pat me on the back and say, hey, this is what we just did. I want you to ask me for permission, and I want you to present the agreement to us, and I want you to present an agreement we all like. You're not gonna get everybody, but I I think the vast majority will vote for a reasonable thing, and my argument is, uh, let's see if we can actually read proposals, talk to individuals, and see if there is some kind of common ground we can find. Thank you. Uh,
3: Senator, thank you very much. Just to respond very briefly, first of all, uh, just as a matter of basic principle, um, we and I personally absolutely welcome uh, the uh, opportunity uh, to uh, consult closely with the chairman, with the ranking member, with every member of this committee uh, on the way forward uh, on Iran, and for that matter, on any of the other issues. Uh, that are before us uh, in foreign policy and national security. So uh, we can absolutely continue this, uh, uh, th- this conversation. Um, this, is a, this is a question of judgment, I think. Um, and our best judgment right now is this, and I think, Senator, you pointed to something very important. You're exactly right. What the Iranians want is permanent relief. And it's and is precisely by holding back that permanent relief until, over a significant period of time, They've demonstrated that they're making good. And and actually, I agree with that point. So so
14: the the idea of suspension is not a bad idea. However, then you need to work with us. Why don't we vote on a one? I I like the idea. We vote on a one-year suspension. Let's find out if they're complying. If we like the terms of the agreement, let's vote again in another year on another year suspension. But don't just think that you're going to be able to do it by yourselves. If you'll acknowledge, you have to bring it to us. Come and sell us. Democracy's messy. And that's the thing, and this is, you've gotta come and sell us on something, and it, it isn't consultation, you have to sell us because we're your boss. We're your co-equal in this, not 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 your subjugant, we are your co-equal. And I, I fully believe that you can bring, if you have all P5 plus one on board with a, with a negotiated settlement, I think you can sell it to us. I, I frankly think that it is not an impossible sell.
1: Thank you, Senator, I will say, uh, Consultations up until this point have been a phone call in the morning that something is happening. And generally speaking, while we're receiving that phone call, we're reading the New York Times or someone else's report. So I do want to associate myself with his comments and uh, uh, generally speaking, and and do hope we'll come to some accord. Senator Udall.
15: Thank you, uh, Senator Corker. And let let me uh, join with others in thanking you and Senator Menendez in terms of trying to work through things and try to, you, you've shown it when your positions were reversed, move us in a bipartisan way and get agreements and I hope we can continue that as we, uh, as we move along. And I, I very much appreciate having the witnesses here today. Um, a lot of what I'm going to say, you know, at the last you uh, 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 I repeat many of the things that have been said, but I, I also support uh, the negotiations. I think it's very important that, that uh, uh, Congress doesn't torpedo them and, and uh, disrupt them, but, but we, I think the message you're getting from us is we want a hard-nosed negotiation. We want uh, to be involved in the process, and, and uh, uh, part of it is, is going through this hearing. Um, and I think one of the things you're saying that's absolutely key is if we were a- alone doing sanctions without all these other countries, uh, we would be in a much different situation. I mean, they, it, it's holding the coalition together that's tremendously important. And, and um, I think we need to remember that when, when – uh... we move forward with whatever the negotiations produce. that we want to keep all those countries together and keep the pressure on because and i'd like you to to just comment on that but i have a have a couple of questions here one one is uh... Um, uh how quickly could we put additional sanctions in place if you had a failure that that's uh... uh that's one and and uh, another is an uh, observation on the side of, of, we hear a lot about the supreme leader in Iran. We hear a lot about the president, and then we hear a lot about the hard line. And and what role do the the, the various players there? Um, who's going to really determine uh, that the the Iran signs on to this deal? And, and it's you know as you as you follow this, you, you begin to wonder uh, who's in charge there? And, and so then that leads to the question is if you have an agreement, who, who could undermine it in the future? And so um, I'm gonna go ahead and, and let you uh, take a shot at a couple of those and maybe follow up here in a minute. Uh,
4: why don't I take the question about how quickly we sure. could impose new sanctions, how quickly Congress could impose new sanctions. I think the answer to that is very quickly. Uh, It has been done in the past in some of the legislation that has been enacted, there have been sanctions that have gone into effect uh, in a matter of weeks. Uh, In some of the executive actions we've taken, those sanctions almost always are immediately effective. So the answer is we would be able to, uh, working with Congress as well as working on our own, uh, impose additional sanctions frankly as quickly as as we want to and do
15: you think secretary cohen other countries the ones that we're working with uh is seeing if things developed in a negative way that they
4: would then be willing uh, to join us on that it's a crucial question and the i think the willingness of other countries to continue to work with us on imposing sanctions, contrary to the economic interests of many of these countries, contrary to economic interests of their businesses, is dependent on their continued belief that we are seeking a negotiated resolution. And in the future, if the talks break down, the ability to hold together the international coalition to intensify the sanctions is going to depend, I think in large part, on who our partners perceive is to blame for the breakdown. So long as we do everything in our power to try and achieve an agreement that meets our needs, meets the needs of our partners, and it's Iran that is to blame for their not reaching an agreement, I think we will have a much better chance of holding together the international coalition and being able to intensify the pressure at that point on Iran.
3: Thank you. And Senator, with regard to your question about uh, the various players and, in effect, uh, who's in charge, uh, we obviously have imperfect uh, knowledge of this. Um, But I think what we've uh, assessed, and uh, again, this is something we can go into in in more detail, um, there are clearly different power centers uh, in Iran. Um, I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at Iran as if it's the one country in the world that doesn't have politics. In fact, it does, and they're very intense. Um, The supreme leader uh, has been, at least, uh, the first among equals uh, for some time but there are critical other constituencies uh, that factor into their decision making. And I think one of the most powerful things that happened in Iran in recent years was actually the election of President Rouhani because in our judgment, uh, that was uh, a reaction to the desire of the Iranian people uh, to improve the economy, uh, to get out from the isolation that they're under, uh, and to move Iran in a different direction. And within the confines of the system, which, which is obviously heavily confined, That was uh, what uh, Rouhani was trying to be responsive to. Whether that's because he believes it or it was politically expedient, I don't know. I think the Supreme Leader also has to measure that in factoring in uh, how much leeway he is going to give to uh, the negotiators in the nuclear context. I will say this. uh, To date, again, as the IEA continues to confirm, uh, Iran has made good on the commitments it's made under the interim agreement. It's held uh, to the uh, the agreement. Uh, And then going forward, Uh, If uh, the the power center changed, um, you know, as we've made very clear, um, Iran, if it violated the agreement uh, in any fashion, uh, would be subject to uh, an intense reaction from us. And as Under Secretary Cohn said, if we're able to preserve the unity of the international coalition that you pointed out at the beginning uh, of your remarks, Senator, that will give us a much greater ability to respond effectively to any decision by Iran to violate the commitments it makes. Thank you very much, and thank you, uh, Chairman Corker.
1: Thank you, sir. Senator Rubio. Thank
16: you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Blinken, much of this debate here today has been about the role of Congress and our need to uh, trust in the ability of the administration to craft a good deal and in the fact that we're going to be consulted. That was the question that you asked. So I want to take you back to the last time you were before this committee, and I asked you a question at that time during your nomination about whether there would be any unilateral changes or changes in Cuba policy. And your answer, and I want to quote it to you, it said, Quote, anything that in the future might be done on Cuba would be done in full consultation with a real meaning of the word consultation that I just alluded to with this committee. End quote. You told me that the last time you were before this committee. Who did you consult with on this committee? Or who did the administration consult with on this committee before it announced the changes on Um, the 17th of December?
3: Senator, um, I regret that I did not live up to the standard I set uh, during that hearing and in the remarks that you just quoted. I think... (laughs) <laughs> that I could have done uh, a better job in uh, engaging with you and consulting with you uh, in advance, uh, and I regret that. Did you consult with the chairman of the committee at the So committee? a number of uh, members I think were uh, reached out to, consulted. What happened was this. Um, who who were the members so, that were consulted? Uh, if I could come back to you on that, I, I I would need to discuss with any first of all get a uh, an accounting of that, and also make sure that any members who were consulted would. Uh, want that, uh, if
1: I could interject, on. I assure you that I was not consulted.
16: Mr. Chairman, you were the chairman at the time. Were you consulted?
3: <laughs> well,
2: uh, no. There's a difference between notification and consultation. The, the reason to why this not, to
16: be notified, you know, when it's going to happen, is not consultation. And the reason why this is relevant is we're being told that we're going to be in the loop on everything that's happening with Iran. We have an example very recently, if we were not in the loop, you were aware at the time that these conversations were occurring with the Cubans, were you not?
3: I was aware generally that they were occurring. I think what happened in the, in the end game was, as you know, uh, Senator, this was a very delicate situation in which we were trying to get our Gross back, we were trying to get our, our, asset, uh, our asset back, uh, and in the end game of that, uh, there was a lot going on to make sure that that happened in a safe and secure way. Uh, but again, I come back to uh,
16: what I said at the outset, I think you're, you're right to point it out, uh, I but I'm not quarreling with the Alan Gross release. I'm quarreling with the policy changes that were made. Why it's relevant to Iran is we're being asked to uh, trust that, that we're going to be fully consulted. Well, the use of the word consultation, as it's been defined by the administration in the last instance that I've decided, is problematic. I mean, I don't want to make this all about Cuba, but just to be, not to be not labor belabor the point, but I also asked whether there would be any changes in policy absent democratic order, and you said that it, that it would just be... That I asked you whether those changes... When you say move forward, move forward on democratic reforms, not simply economic reforms, and you said not simply economic reforms, and clearly we don't see any democratic reforms. There was a release of 53 political prisoners, 14 had already been released on December 17th. Uh, One of them had been released almost a full year before December 17th. Four had fully completed their sentences, five have been rearrested, and since the deal was done on the 17th, 200 new political arrests have occurred in Cuba. But here's why that's relevant to this, because we're being asked as a Congress to sit tight because we're going to be fully consulted, and it sounds like the only people that are going to be fully consulted are the people who agree with the administration. And if you don't agree with the administration, then you'll just be notified. My second point goes to the question that both Senator Udall asked about who's in charge, but also Senator Johnson asked about why the Iranians would undergo so much pain in pursuit of this. The answer to who's in charge, unless you dispute it, is ultimately who's in charge is who they call the supreme leader, the Ayatollah. Is that accurate? Uh,
3: Senator, he is the first among equals in our judgment, but he does have other constituencies that he has to factor in in his. All right,
16: position. well, let me. Can they possibly agree to a change like of the kinds we're contemplating without his approval, given the support he has in their legislative branch? Uh, and I think that's the fact highly, that it's highly third, unlikely. Highly unlikely. So, who is this Ayatollah? Well, the Ayatollah is not simply a head of state as we normally see it, the head of a nation state. He is a, a radical cleric who views himself, first of all, doesn't just view Iran as a nation state, it views its, <laughs> Iran as a cause as has, has Henry Kissinger has described it, and the cause is to eventually have the entire world living under the flag of Islam, that's actually stated in their constitution. It goes further and states that the Ayatollah is not just the, the, the leader of Iran, he's the leader of all Muslims in the world, isn't that accurate? That, that's his position huh? and title. So he doesn't view, he just basically, Iran is where he lives, but he views his mandate as extending to the whole world, but it goes beyond this, these are, these are unambiguous statements on their part. He, doesn't just view himself as a cleric. He views himself as the temporary fill-in for the 13th Imam, the Mahdi, who under Shia, his interpretation of Shia, and I think the mainstream interpretation of Shia, is a, uh, an Imam that's currently in occultation that will emerge one day in the world and govern the, world, the entire world under the flag of Islam. And their stated purpose for the state of Iran is to serve as a base for that effort throughout the world. That is what motivates him. We are ascribing to his regime nation-state characteristics of a normal country that has a cost-benefit analysis about what's in the national interest of Iran. And I don't dispute that there might be some political leaders in Iran that hold those views, but the Ayatollah, the supreme leader, he doesn't view it that way. He views not just his calling, but his obligation to bring, the, to bring about the arrival of the 13th Imam and to unify the world under the flag of radical Islam as he defines it. And here's why that's important. Under his clerical interpretation and that of, of many in, in Shia, the 13th Imam cannot emerge until there's a cataclysmic showdown between the Muslim and non-Muslim world. And when a country led by a person who wants there to be a cataclysmic showdown between the Muslim and non-Muslim world has designs on a nuclear weapon, now we have cause for great concern. And that's why they expand their military capability, and that's why they want a nuclear weapon. Now what they've shown is some crafty ability to, they reject everything that's not Islamic in the world. They reject the the legitimacy of the UN, they reject the legitimacy of the United States, but they're very crafty. They accept the benefits of these international order, of the international order, for example, their seat at the UN, but while still being able to reject their obligations under that international order. So what have they done with all that? Well, let's go through the timeline. In 2003, the position of the world was no enrichment. Then it became, you can enrich up to 20%. Then it became, you can enrich over 20% as long as you send it overseas. And now it's, you can enrich up to 20% in Iran as long as it's for a research facility. So if you go the timeline of what they've been able to achieve over the last 10 years, it's pretty impressive how they've been able to use this process. In other five years, maybe we'll build the bomb for them at the rate this is going. And, and, And meantime, the other two components of a nuclear program move forward unabated. A weapon design, you can buy that, you can buy that. You can buy a weapons design right now. Heck, you can download it online potentially if it's a crude weapon. And the missile program continues unabated. They continue to test long-range missile capabilities, not to mention adding to their uh, already considerable conventional weapons capability. And so this is why we're very concerned and we have a right to be concerned. This is not a traditional nation-state undergoing a cost-benefit analysis. This is a cleric-led regime, a clerical government with a, with a clear intent of ultimately one day unifying the entire world under the flag of their radical version of Islam, led by someone who believes that that will only happen after a cataclysmic showdown with the West. So we have real reasons to be deeply concerned and skeptical about the ability to reach any arrangement and real reasons to believe that they are willing to accept short-term suspensions because their long-term view is that at the end of the day, they're gonna be at that showdown point and if they have nuclear weapons, they're even better off than they would normally be. And that's why we're so skeptical about this deal. We're not dealing with Belgium here. We're not dealing with Luxembourg. We are dealing with a radical cleric, with a radical view of his obligation and role in the world, and he wants nuclear weapons to be able to do it. And I believe that ultimately, I think no one here could dispute that ultimately, even if they agree to a short suspension, that is their goal in the long term. And as the North Koreans have shown, you can agree to all sorts of short-term suspensions, and you can always invent the pretext for why now I need the weapon, because of the hostilities of the West, because it's time for the hitting imam to emerge, whatever. And that's what we're concerned about. They will retain all the infrastructure that it takes to enrich. They will have a weapons design and they will have the delivery system and the missiles. And at some point, three years, five years, 10 years, they build the weapon and now the world is at their mercy. And that's why we're so skeptical.
3: Um, Senator, just to respond briefly, uh, we, we share your concern and we share your skepticism precisely because of Iran's Long track record uh, that you alluded to, which is exactly why any agreement we reach uh, has to have the most stringent restrictions on its program and the most stringent requirements on access and transparency and monitoring uh, to give us confidence that they will not break out. I just want to say, um, with regard to, the, to to consultations going forward, um, you know, I think on this issue, and it's my sense that over the past months and any the past years, the administration has been here in closed sessions, uh, obviously in open hearings, in one-on-one conversations, and smaller group conversations, uh, to lay out, I, I think, extensively where we are, where we're trying to go on the Iran negotiations. Uh, I commit to you, uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, ranking members, Senator Rubio, others, uh, that going forward, we will not only continue that, uh, we will expand that, and we will be up here any time uh, that you want, uh, any place to talk about where we are, and again, some of that I, we just have to do in a closed session. Uh, or in a uh, private group because the negotiations are ongoing. Uh, but we want to make sure that uh, you see the full details of what we're trying to, uh, to achieve. Um, with regard to um, the uh, suspicions about Iran and the Supreme Leader, again, we share them. We could spend uh, all day here going through the outrageous things uh, that he has said uh, in the past, including uh, the recent past, about us, about Israel, about other designs, but sometimes reality has a way of intruding. And no matter what it is that he may believe or, and he may want, and no matter his exceptional role in the system, I think you're right about that, um, he has to deal with the realities that Iran is facing. And he has seen a country that has been subjected to extraordinary pressure uh, economically, that has been more and more isolated, and he's seeing politically that uh, a lot of the Iranian people don't like that. And Rouhani's election, in our judgment, was a response to that. Yeah, we've seen him give the negotiators, I think, more uh, leeway than, frankly, we would have expected possibly at the outset. He's kept the talks going. We continue to make progress. And at the end of the day, uh, we will all have to judge whether what we've achieved uh, in any kind of uh, solution uh, meets our security interests. And we will not take a, a bad deal precisely because we share your concerns uh, and share your suspicions. But. This is not happening uh, in a vacuum. And I think we also have to ask ourselves continuously, as compared to what? Uh, It's going to be, uh, if uh, we um, are not able to reach an agreement, um, it may become increasingly difficult to sustain the the sanctions regime. It depends a lot, I think, on what Under Secretary Cohn said about who is perceived as being responsible for the failure to get a strong uh, agreement. Many of our partners have come along kicking and screaming to implement sanctions, it's been against their economic interest. We've held them there. Part of that, a large part of that is because they believe we're trying to drive to uh, an agreement. And indeed, that's the purpose, as has been said, of the sanctions is to get them to the table. So we'll have to test all of this out. We, again, start from the same proposition you do. Uh, we are very, very suspicious, but we also see the reality that's intruding on the Supreme Leader's thinking.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Senator. If, if I could say, uh, again, this committee is not proposing anything that breaks us apart from the international uh, partners that we have. I know you keep referring to that, and I I know there's a red herring that keeps being thrown out, but we are asking, many of us, for consultation and a vote on the deal that we've been so involved in making happen. Senator Risch.
17: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'll be brief. First of all, put me in the column with the skeptics in this committee, such as the chairman and the ranking member, and and, uh, likewise, uh, Senator Keene. I've been sitting through this from the beginning. Uh, I I thought these guys were going to scam you from the beginning, and I'm convinced today that they've done that. I I think they've they've got us set up for uh, uh, what could be a real disaster. I mean, you just think about how they went about this. First of all, what you gotta do is look at the background as, as uh, articulated uh, by Senator Rubio. But in addition to that, look at the efforts we've had in the past. Go back and read the chapter in Rouhani's book about what he did to the American negotiators, how he kept them at the table, and how he drug his feet, and how he was using the peace process to actually continue their ambitions to get a nuclear weapon. All right, put that. use that as your background. Then think about the UN resolutions that said, look, Iran, you can't do this anymore. And Iran said, nope, we're gonna do it no matter what, we aren't even gonna negotiate unless you guys agree that we can have some kind of a program, okay? So now they've crossed that bridge. Okay, so now they sit down, if you were gonna do this and you were going to uh, uh, continue with your nuclear ambitions, go in the direction that Senator Rubio has suggested, why wouldn't you sit down with your enemy, negotiate this kind of a deal, and now you know exactly what the enemy is going to know. You're gonna know what the inspection regime is, you're gonna know how they're gonna go about this, and you're gonna be able to put together a system where you can continue your ambitions while you're The people who are supposed to be curtailing you are going about what they're going about and you knowing all the ways they're gonna do it. I mean, I think you guys are being bamboozled. I really do, and I hope. I hope you can come in here someday and say, ha, you doofus, you had no idea what you're talking about. I don't think that's gonna happen. These people are bad people. Every time I'm on intelligence committee, I sit here, every time we have a problem in that area of the world, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Yemen or whether it's Hezbollah, wherever it pops up, whose fingerprints are on this? It's the Iranians. So, uh, look, I, uh, it's its getting late. Uh, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing, bless you. I hope you can pull it off. But I got to tell you, I thought from the beginning you were going to get scammed, and every day that goes by here and as I listen to to how these negotiations are going, I think you're getting scammed, and I hope I'm dead wrong.
3: Um, thank you, Senator. Uh, I would just say very quickly a couple of things. Um, I think, with regard to uh, what President uh, Rouhani did in his past life as a nuclear negotiator, uh, first of all, uh, we were very much inspired by that uh, in looking at the uh, what we insisted on in the interim agreement. It's precisely because we didn't want Iran to be able to repeat what it's done in the past, which is spend endless time talking at a table while it's going full bore with its program, that we insisted that the program effectively be frozen, rolled back in some respects, and we got. Uh, increased inspections and access that have given us far greater knowledge program. So we were inspired by that I'd say also I think he is a politician I suspect some of what he wrote in his book uh, was to appeal uh, as a politician uh, to other Iranians And indeed he's a successful one since he got elected uh, president But again, we start from your premise that this is not about trusting uh, This is about absolutely verifying all the commitments they make um, I think with regard to um, the uh, inspections and access and monitoring piece um, Again, this is fundamental to any resolution uh, that we would reach. Um, And I believe that we will have the ability, if we reach the kind of agreement that we want to reach, to um, significantly enhance our ability and the ability of the international community throughout the entire production line in their program uh, to know what they're doing, when they're doing it, where they're doing it. We will develop a base of knowledge that we don't even have now about the people, the places, the techniques, that will stand us in very good stead even beyond the duration of agreement so we think it's in our interest uh, and again right now based on what we have achieved to date with the interim agreement you remember uh prime minister netanyahu came before the united nations a couple of years ago and he held up that drawing of a of a bomb and there was a line and it was getting close to uh, filling up the bomb that was the 20 percent enriched and he was absolutely right that was something that was critically important particularly because it was being produced at a buried facility Uh, that is harder to deal with if it has to be dealt with. Well, that has stopped under the JAPOA. No 20% produced, stockpile of uh, that uh, eliminated. The other pathways to a bomb, looking at what they might do at the Iraq facility, the plutonium pathway. There too, we had deep concerns about it because once that uh, facility is turned on and fueled, it's very problematic, uh, not impossible, but problematic also to deal with in other ways if we had to do that. We stopped that in its tracks. No fuel, no components. Uh, no progress. The third pathway, Natanz, building up a lot of centrifuges uh, at lower enriched levels and then building up a massive stockpile that can then be more quickly converted uh, to a higher grade. There, too, uh, no new centrifuges, uh, no next-generation centrifuges installed. Uh, The stockpile of 4% capped at its pre-Tripal levels. So I believe because you were right Uh, that we didn't want to be drawn into-
17: You've said all that before and I appreciate that. And uh, like I said, I hope it works. My problem is this, any inspection regime, any regime that you put together for doing this, they're gonna know all about it. They're gonna know all the details of it. And just remember that their objective is not your objective. Your objective, our objective is to stop them. Their objective is to get to that point and doing it such that they're not gonna get attacked in the meantime. They're gonna know all the details, how to do it in any regime you put together. There's technologies uh, that, that can get around that. So I hope you're right. Let me just close with this on a very parochial matter. As we're speaking here right now, the president's on his way to Idaho. And while he's there uh, pursuant to a request from, uh, from us and we're happy he did so, he's gonna meet with a, a woman by the name of uh, Mrs. Abedini. Her husband's in prison uh, in Iran, shouldn't be. There's three Americans that are there. I, For the life of me, and, and Wendy Sherman's had to sit there and listen to me say this month after month after month, why you guys cut loose of all that money when they are so cash hungry, without putting your hand on it and saying, we're gonna take it off when those three guys are free. I cannot believe that they wouldn't cut those guys loose. I, I wanna urge you again, you, you, the administration says it's the compassionate, arm of the government, so be it, but use some compassion. Help Mrs. Abedini and those two little kids. Let's get this guy home. He's got no business being in jail in Iran simply because he's a Christian and was over there doing Christian kinds of things. So with that, my time is up and uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You.
3: Senator, can I just say you're, you're absolutely uh, right. Uh, Syed Abedini, uh, Amir Hakmadi, uh, Jason Rezian must be released uh, regardless of anything else uh, we're doing with Iran. It's a, uh, an entirely distinct issue. Uh, they are wrongly imprisoned. And we need to find Robert Levinson and hopefully bring him home. We fully agree. Uh, but we also think that tying that uh, to any agreement, the success or failure for that matter of agreement, uh, is not the best way to get them out. I, I, I can assure you, and I, th- I, th- I think you know this, the only issue that we raise with them on the margins of the nuclear talks every single time, other than the nuclear talks, uh, are those who are unjustly imprisoned uh, in Iran, and we are working every day uh, to get them home, and we will not stop until we do. Get it done. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you, Mr. Thank you Senator. Senator Menendez.
2: Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for your courtesy. Uh, just a couple of quick questions and a couple of observations. Uh, Secretary Blinken, let's be honest. As it relates to consultation, there was consultations, long consultations with members who were in agreement with the President's proposed policy changes, but none who might be in disagreement. And that gives, that's on Cuba, and that gives rise to the concern that there will be no consultation but notification only uh, to those of us who may be concerned about the nature of any agreement or continuous rolling extensions. So I hope you understand that as it relates to moving forward, I mean it was the subject of your conversation with me when you were a nominee, of questions I asked you here before the committee and your nomination, and I'm disappointed. Uh, With reference to March 24th, if there is a
3: quote unquote deal, will that deal be written? Um, At this point, uh, I can't tell you. My expectation would be that we would be able to show all of the critical, elements of the deal, whether there would be an actual uh, initial agreement uh, that would then be turned into uh, a technical agreement at this point, I can't, I can't tell you. Well, wouldn't the outlines of
2: a deal be something that the Iranians and the P5 plus one should be able to sign to at least so that there's no changing of, well, that's not what we understood or that's not what we agreed
3: to? Yeah. It would be my expectation that that's where we'd want to go, but I just can't, sit, as I sit here today, I can't tell you exactly what form. What we would achieve, so, so hopefully, it, is, it concerns of the me that
2: we may not have a written agreement. Let me ask you this: There's no deal on March 24th. You can't come to even the outlines of an agreement. What then?
3: So, Senator, I think if there is uh, no agreement on the core elements of a deal by March 24th, um, it will depend on exactly where we are. So, what I mean by that so is, you that may
2: very well say, "Well, let's keep keep it going."
3: If it's clear by then that we are simply not going to get to yes, by which I mean that it is clear that the Iranians will not meet the requirements, then uh, I think we'll have to uh, work closely with you on what uh, steps we will take to try and convince them to do that. Um, If, however, uh, we have closed off most of the key chapters, but let's say for argument's sake, uh, one of the key chapters remains, that's something we'd wanna talk to you about to see what the best way to proceed is. So sitting here today, I think a lot depends on exactly where we are, but the bottom line is, if we conclude by the end of March that they are simply not going to do what they need to do, that puts us in a very different uh, position. Uh, Secretary Cohen, any of those hundred sanctions that you talked about, that you levied, were
2: any of them, was Iran complicit in any of them in terms of trying to evade sanctions? Or was the individuals just working on their own?
4: Oh, I think uh, for some number of them, uh, I I believe some of them in fact were Iranian uh, citizens or people in Iran, and others, uh, no question that Iran was, uh, was at least witting of what was, uh, what was underway.
2: So during this period of time of the Joint Plan of Action, there actually were efforts by Iran to evade sanctions, uh, fortunately, at least in those instances, you caught them. So it gives me another concern about their intent. Let me just say a, a couple of observations. Number one, with reference to Senator Paul and Senator Boxer, I'm not sure that legislation that says that this is what will happen if there's no deal or a violation of a deal, which you say you think uh, Secretary Blinken is acceptable, is any different really than what we are saying, which is we impose nothing until after the fact if there's no deal. I I think that's nuanced at at best. It's interesting to note that sanctions on Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine hasn't caused them to walk away from what they think is an important deal to be achieved. So the suggestion that sanctions alone, that will never happen until after a certain point in time in which you've either concluded a deal or not, uh, and that won't happen if there is a deal, you know, if the Russians wouldn't walk away with sanctions on Ukraine and saying, well, if you're hurting us on this, we're gonna hurt you on that, you know, is I think pretty telling. And to be very honest with you, Secretary Cohen, the overwhelming number of sanctions that this committee has levied through the Congress have overwhelmingly had a much more significant lead period of time uh, than immediate imposition, and obviously the time frame necessary for it to have an effect on Iran uh, has been even greater. So there's no such thing as an immediate sanction that ultimately uh, has an immediate effect. There are very few of those. It takes time for, for there to be consequences. And uh, I don't know, but it, it seems to me it took us a fair amount of time to know about partition which was a covert operation. So uh, I'd hate to see that even with what we envision as a verification and inspections, that an attempt to do something covert would take us as much time as it took in Parchin to uncover, and that would be consequential. And finally, uh, Mr. Secretary, you stated that we will have the same ability to respond in the future should Iran breach or break out, and they, well, we will have all options on the table. Uh, I think that ignores the reality that Iran will be in a different position. Iran will be able to sell more than 2 million barrels of oil. It will have access to $100 billion in reserves currently being held overseas, and it will have the ability to procure critical items for its program. It gets a lot from an agreement that will apparently require no dismantling of its program. We get a one-year alarm bell, which just may not be enough time to react in a non-military fashion. So the very essence of what the president is concerned is telling people that, well, sanctions, if it breaks the coalition, then we may be left with only a military option. Uh, I'll tell you something. Uh, If you have nothing in place after a no-deal situation, then the president may very well be of his own design in a position in which his only options is a military option or accepting Iran as a nuclear uh, state. And that is a pretty terrible uh, set of circumstances. Now, maybe you don't fear that, because maybe there's another set of secret letters or deals on the side that we don't know about. There have been a lot of those in these different transactions. So uh, I don't know if they are. Maybe you can tell us whether there is any that we should be waiting upon. But I'll just there, there with, not. Uh, oh, well, that's good to know. Uh, Hopefully, none will surface afterwards because then we'll have to have a real conversation. Uh, So uh, I'll just say, look, I think that to some degree, no one has worked harder to try to get you to the point to succeed. I want you to succeed. But by the same token, uh, I have to be honest, you need to succeed in a way that is meaningful uh, at the end of the day. And there is a bit of a trust problem here because when you have secret deals, uh, when you don't consult, which is to say ask we are thinking about proceeding in this course, what do you think about that? Versus just telling us this is what we've done. That's notification, not consultation. And when Secretary Cohen and and, uh, uh, Wendy Sherman were here in the past, when I was pursuing sanctions and I heard all the alarm bells as well, even after we were asked, I was asked, to work with Senator Kirk to come up with a more reasonable sanctions regime and then had them oppose it before this committee it creates a real concern about when you raise alarm bells and that passed 99 to 0, and now you herald it as part of your ability to get Iran to negotiate. So that's a, that's a real concern as well. And so, you know, there's a difference between our aspirations and realism. Aspirations, had uh, to strike a deal with North Korea, including with one of your present negotiators. Uh, realism is that they ended up being a nuclear armed state, and that's what we're trying to avoid here. Thank you,
1: Mr. Chair. Thank you, sir. and Again, thanks for all your efforts uh, to bring us to this point and I look forward uh, over the next few days to see if there's some common ground to address the consultation and, and Congress's role ultimately in this. Um, I do want to say one thing. I know there's been a lot of discussions about uh, Bibi Netanyahu's, uh, whatever you might have called, his prop at the UN. I think it's fair to note that uh, with the additional research and development that Iran has done and they're moving way up the food chain from the standpoint of the centrifuge development, they can move so much more quickly from zero to 90% now that that is almost an old adage, and I think you all are very aware of that. And uh, And I think that's the concern that we have is on the research and development component and the things they're doing to move rapidly rapidly towards being able to get to 90% uh, very, very quickly. But let me just give a few closing comments. I too want you to be successful. Um, I wake up every day wanting our nation to be successful in every endeavor. And I think I've shown uh, to this administration my desire to to work towards uh, common ground and to try to solve problems. So I, I want these negotiations to be successful. I think our concerns are, uh, And I had one of the most impactful uh, meetings, along with a number of people here on the committee, um, in Israel uh, just in the last couple of days. But I think the, the concerns are, as you look back over the history over the last 10 years that some people have alluded to, Iran has stayed here. And the P-5 began here. And as these negotiations have progressed, what's happened is Uh, the P5, and us being the major driving force, have continued to move towards their position. And I would just argue that, again, having Congress as a backstop, as you enter these final steps, having Congress as a backstop, someone that you do, in fact, not only have to consult with, but you have to seek their approval, would be somewhat of an anchor to keep us from continuing to move towards their position. And I think it would be very difficult for you to say that there hasn't been a continual movement towards their position. I mean, you look at where we began with the UN security resolutions, you look at where we began with us potentially agreeing to them having enough centrifuges to serve their quote, practical needs, which as I understand it, every scientist has said was about 500 centrifuges. And I think you would tell me today we've moved way beyond that. So I would just say to you, Congress can be an excellent backstop to you as you're moving down the road. I thought Senator Kane probably expressed it better than any of us here when we entered into these agreements that uh, Senator Menendez was so much a part of, meaning these sanctions. I don't think anyone, in giving you the national security waivers, ever thought the President was going to suspend them, in all likelihood, until the end of his term. I don't think anybody ever thought that. So the fact that we know that if you do that, the entire sanctions regime falls apart, and I have tremendous respect for Secretary Cohen. The fact is, these take a long time to put together. And so, again, to have to come to us on the front end of a deal before you've dismantled the entire regime, to me, is an incredibly important step that I hope uh, you will consult with us on. We've laid out a proposal. We hope you'll consult, and we hope we'll come to an agreement that takes into account some of the nuance that you pointed out early, that you'd like for us to discuss, but just stiff-arming and saying after the role that we have played to basically put the international community at the table just to stiff-arm, say, no, we really don't want you to play a role. We want you just to trust us is totally unacceptable from my standpoint. So look, the Supreme Leader, we keep referring to him, and apparently, as we negotiate, <laughs> We seem to be more concerned about the Supreme Leader's position than anyone else's. So I just want to lay out one thing. The Supreme Leader has said publicly that one of his major concerns is that Iran enters into a, an agreement, and somehow over time, Congress changes its mind. We have a we have a presidential race that's coming up. I assure you that the Iran component will be a, a major part of the next presidential race. I believe that to be the case. And so since there's so much concern about the Supreme Leader and him walking away or doing whatever, I would just say that Congress's approval of a deal, to me, would be reassuring that whatever deal that you've done would stand the test of time. So I would encourage you to sit down, to walk through with us some of the concerns that you have about timing. But I would say that uh, general movement today is towards Congress playing a role. I think Again, just stiff-arming doesn't take us to a place that probably meets the test that both of us need to meet, and I would encourage you again to sit down and talk with us. We thank you for being here today. We thank you both in spite of our concerns for your service to our country. Uh, And let me just give some uh, formalities. For the information of the members, the record will, will remain open until the close of Business Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. We ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible, your responses will also be made a part of the record with, thanks, uh, with the thanks of the committing This, this uh, hearing is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.